0: Hello, and welcome to Media Evil, a medieval pop culture podcast, where we talk about how medieval and medieval-inspired movies, TV, and books depict the medieval world. What did they get right? What did they get wrong? And what do they tell us about how modern people see the medieval past? I'm Sarah Ifdecker, a medieval historian, and today I'll be talking about the 2019 miniseries version of The Name of the Rose with fellow medieval historian Kevin Lord.
1: Hi, Sarah. How are you? Good. I am a medievalist. A historian of medieval Germany and I just finished my dissertation in May of this year so I'm currently thinking about my first book which will be on a character who figures in the background of the name of the rose Ludwig the Bavarian so I'm very excited to talk about this mini series.
0: spoiler for the fact that that's going to be a figure discussed <laughs> prominently in a later <laughs> section of the podcast right. <laughs> <laughs>
1: If only to indulge my proclivities, right?
0: Yes. And we have known each other also for a long time since we were in graduate school together. That's right.
1: Many hair follicles have fallen from my hair, my head uh, since I met you.
0: We're both a little grayer and a little more depressed than when we first met Yeah.
1: Slightly. Yes. Yes.
0: Thanks, grad school.
1: Yeah, exactly.
0: <laughs> the name of the Rose miniseries is, is it actually a German company that produced it? I should have written that I down. I think in it design. is. Okay. And
1: you know, I, I can't remember the name of the company, but I'm almost certain it's the, it's the same company to which we owe the, the existence of the luck dragon from The NeverEnding Story. I think oh, it's like Bavarian Filmworks. I'm pretty huh. sure that, the, that it's them. Okay. If I'm wrong, then... <laughs> And <laughs> excoriate me.
0: Someone might tell us.
1: But you know, every every film project should have a luck dragon associated with it. So you know, definitely. Yeah.
0: starring John Turturro as William of Vaskerville, who does a great job, and uh, Rupert Everett as Bernard Gui. <laughs> there are not a lot of people in this that I'd actually heard of before. The other one <laughs> that I have is James Cosmo, who plays Jorge Burgos, who's oh, also yeah. in uh, has featured many times on this podcast because he's in Braveheart and Outlaw King. And he's in Game of Thrones, right. as <laughs> Speaking of Game of Thrones, I want to extend just an apology to poor Damian Harding, who plays Adzo of Milk, because I definitely <laughs> thought for like the first like 25 minutes of the first episode before I looked it up that he was Ramsay Bolton.
1: Seriously? <laughs> yes. He's so much less like creepy looking than, than Ramsey Bolton. Though. I think
0: he's creepy. I think he's just younger.
1: <laughs> I, I, I just, yeah. His creepiness has yet to come to full flower.
0: Yeah. Like, I'm sorry, Damien, but you look a little like a young Ramsey Bolton. So maybe like think Man. about that when you're making your haircut choices, just like in the future. I don't know.
1: <laughs> I, I have to side with, with Damien Harding is like a, 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 a rather handsome young fella. <laughs> Wholesome, corn fed German boy. <laughs>
0: <laughs> the jury's out on Damien.
1: Yeah.
0: <laughs> I'll mention just also the names of the exactly two women actors in this, although I have not yeah. heard of either of them. Britta Scarano as uh, playing the roles of both Margarita and Anna, because they couldn't That was a two neat women. check, right? They
1: couldn't find two.
0: <laughs> nope, God forbid. And Antonia Fotadas as, and this is how she is listed in the credits, the Occitan girl.
1: That's right, Yeah. <laughs>
0: So, spoiler alert, this might not pass the Ift-Decker test, my test in which wow. I determine if there's at least one named woman who doesn't die.
1: <laughs> yeah, this this movie, uh, well, this series sets a a, a very low bar and it, and it and it fails to meet it.
0: Yeah. And also not in that respect, but in some other respects, as we'll see, it does worse than the movie and the book that this is based on.
1: right. Yes. yes. <laughs> I, I haven't seen Rupert Everett and anything else but he has the extraordinary ability as Bernard Gui to, to look the entire time like there is dog shit on his shoe.
0: Oh yeah, he's good. It's, it's
1: remarkable. It's like, yeah. Just, yeah, it's not it's not even just a wicked sneer. It's more of just, I smell something awful.
0: <laughs> right, which is exactly what I would expect from Bernard Gui's. Yeah. Yeah, so he's really owning that character.
1: He's definitely owning the character.
0: Who played him in the movie? Do you remember?
1: I believe it was F. Mary Abraham.
0: Oh, that's interesting.
1: Yeah. Uh, used to get him confused with ben kingsley when i was a child but Mm.
0: i thought f murray abraham was jewish until like three months ago apparently he is not
1: i yeah well i had no idea (laughs) (laughs) did you google him
0: (laughs) i think he was in another movie that i look i can't remember what now but he was in another movie that i did for the podcast and i go and i was like looking him up and then i'm like oh he's not jewish huh? I've seen the movie, but not for years at this point. And I was going to try to watch it, but I couldn't find it streaming.
1: Well, it's actually a lot of fun. And you know, Sean Connery is, you know, I he's uh, still in his prime, his vigor.
0: <laughs> yeah, that's really the only thing I remember is Sean Connery.
1: Yeah, and if you like Christian Slater, he's in there.
0: Yes, I saw that I when I was Ron looking at Roman's in there. Yeah, that's right. I saw Sha- I saw that goes Christian Slater uh, as adzo, right? Yeah. When I was looking up the cast of the movie a while ago, just out of curiosity. I was like, That seems so weird, just based on my current impressions of Christian Slater. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that I can't quite imagine him as a 14th century monk, but I'm sure he's very. <laughs> well, he good. does he's a good job of
1: primarily asking questions or being mm-hmm. quiet, which right, you
0: know, <laughs> right, which is kind helps. of the point it of the helps character
1: carry off, yeah, the medieval aspect of of Christian Slater.
0: Right. And it must have been one of his first roles, so nobody yet had the, like, preconceptions about Christian Slater as being an asshole.
1: Right. (laughs) That's
0: right. Yeah. (laughs) Which is the character he usually plays.
1: And the film is, in my mind, it's kind of an excellent movie, but it's one of those movies that is so egregious (laughs) in exaggerating (laughs) medieval hysteria about the apocalypse. Yeah. You know, so the the monks are, you know, they kind of go insane immediately once murders start, I recall in the film or you know Mm -hmm.
0: is that coming from the book or did they exaggerate it in the film I don't remember
1: it was exaggerated in the film okay or at least that's my that's my perception I I, my perception I mean I've read the book several times but not recently
0: same yeah and just did not have time to reread the book on this particular occasion I I had ambitions but they were (laughs) 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 yeah
1: largely they were largely unfulfilled
0: (laughs) yeah there's a lot happening that's right For the first main section, the enumeratio or recap section, I'll start with just a very brief recap or as brief as I was able to get it for like eight hours of television, <laughs> <laughs> just to provide an orientation and then we can have a more general discussion.
1: Excellent. It looks like it's more than 200 words.
0: <laughs> yeah, it uh, would not go forth as a contra- as a conference abstract. Maybe if it was a 250. It might be, it might be 250. <laughs> Excellent. In the year 1327, the novice monk Adzo of Melk joins the Franciscan William of Baskerville on his travels to a Benedictine monastery, where he will represent the Franciscans in a theological debate about poverty with representatives of the Avignon Papacy. However, before the papal representatives arrive, the abbey is disturbed by a series of mysterious deaths. The abbot tasks William with investigating the murders, which he soon links to the library. Meanwhile, Adzo meets and flirts with an Occitan woman who will remain nameless even after they eventually have sex. The arrival of the papal representatives, led by Dominican Bernard Gui, only complicates matters due to the debate, additional murders, and Guy's investigation into the heretical background of some of the monks. Eventually, the murderer is revealed to be the monk Jorge of Burgos, who has killed many of his fellow monks in order to contest efforts to open up the library and in particular to keep a copy of Aristotle's Second Poetics, which speaks on the virtues of laughter from the monks. Several of them died from touching the poisoned pages of the book, Jorge consumes the book and dies. While a lantern starts a fire that destroys the library and most of its contents. This is interesting to revisit after. I can't remember if this if you were at Yale when um yet yeah, when Umberto Eco spoke.
1: I w- when he came and spoke. Yes, I was.
0: Yeah, I couldn't remember when that was, but that was. It was. I mean, it was a. It was a great talk and very exciting to hear him speak. Uh, and he had the line uh, that I uh, wrote down, and actually that I like wrote down somewhere and have remembered, where he said, uh, "Medievalists want to read the books; bibliophiles want to steal them." Right. <laughs> <laughs> which feels very much like a, a assessment of the world, which is kind of at the root of this book in a lot of ways. This the original book that this is based on in a lot of ways.
1: Yeah. Right. Well, didn't he tell us during that talk that he had conceived of writing a book about a library, not just from Berg, from, from, from was it Borgias, but also when he was in the stacks at Yale. Yeah. And I thought, what, what are the pressing? No wonder <laughs> <laughs> the pressing place. To...
0: <laughs> I know the stacks at Yale are not attractive enough for to run, to like, justify you know, that. The,
1: the facade is stripped back once you get back there into the into yeah. the tower. Yeah. Yeah, that was a great talk. Yeah. I really enjoyed that.
0: Yeah. And he died just a couple of years ago, actually.
1: That's right. Yeah. yeah.
0: He, in general, I will say, really is somebody who clearly really deeply loved medieval history in a lot of ways or was very or was like very deeply interested in medieval history and how he could use it to tell stories and uh, that did i think re- and that's really something that comes out in his books and uh, very much something that makes the book the name of the rose great and i think is the root of what is best about the show as well
1: absolutely i i agree um his his commitment to the subject material is apparent in the in the book itself his other book botolino is also on yeah. a medieval subject and it's a much more esoteric and i thought <laughs> difficult story to get into
0: oh i love Bottolino.
1: really oh yes. my goodness i mean <laughs> what if, like about the, the 300 pages of just weird medieval creatures like yeah i, <laughs> I love struggle. the weird
0: medieval creatures
1: <laughs> okay so but but i mean it does definitely show like his commitment to to, to like oh, actual yeah. research right? Yeah. Which which is then of course inevitably perhaps diminished <laughs> when it is translated <laughs> onto the screen.
0: <laughs> yeah I'm not sure that the people who are responsible with this adaptation uh, were as invested in medieval history as Umberto Eco was and he presumed based on the timing he would not have been involved I assume at all in uh, the production. You because,
1: know why couldn't they get, get James Franco to consult on this? <laughs> <laughs> I'm I mean, going to say on. fellow
0: Yale graduate, but I don't think he graduated, did he?
1: I, I you know, it's it, it could take a while. I don't have no idea.
0: So yeah, fellow fellow Yale, grad, fellow Yale grad fellow
1: Yale As a recent graduate, I can say it takes some time. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not casting stones. <laughs>
0: or not. We open with the line, the future Holy Roman Emperor Ludwig <laughs> of Bavaria declares the separation between politics and religion, which we can talk about in more detail in these specific <laughs> sections where we talk about historical accuracy. But I definitely read sure. that and just immediately went, well, this is going to be an experience.
1: I definitely began to question, <laughs> the question this entire project immediately when I read that line. Yep. I said, <laughs> well, the commitment here is very light.
0: <laughs> yep. Uh, all right. This is this is where we're going this
1: <laughs> the trick yeah the, the, everyone should know should know now that that turns out not to have been the case <laughs> yep
0: <laughs> but we do have a battle at the beginning so that everyone knows that the middle ages was very violent
1: it definitely does let us know straight up that this separation of politics and religion is going to be violent
0: like everything else in the middle Ages. <laughs>
1: this is not a joke man this is sword stuff <laughs> The the rest of the series is a sideshow <laughs>
0: <laughs> yep. And it's very weird that it's it feels very gratuitous because this battle is not in the book. No. At least not anything that you see or, you know, participate in. I don't think it's in the movie either.
1: No. I mean it's not in the book. It's not in the movie. Adso of melk is his, his... I don't believe that his father is described as a general in the Holy Roman Emperor's army. Yeah. And in fact, when when Ludwig goes to Italy, he goes there and it's it, there are Italian mercenaries that form the core of his force because he originally rides down with a hundred knights Yeah. right after Christmas time. You know, right. he's not heavily, you know, he's, he's not a rich guy either. So, you know, the Italians are kind yeah. of footing the bill
0: <laughs> so I don't do. know who
1: this who this German general was with right. kind of some kind of weird fetish
0: who also for... like apparently drags his son out of the monastery and then like makes him have sex with women in front of him or something
1: <laughs> yeah let me confirm that that you're doing it boy this isn't about my weird old man thing at all
0: yeah that I'm going to, like, sleep with this woman and then be like, nope, your turn now. Your turn now, son. Not,
1: yes, yeah. Right. Show me what you're capable of, boy.
0: Yeah. So so that's a thing that uh, his father, the general of uh, the Holy Roman Emperor, does.
1: I could definitely see that as somebody turning into Ramsay Bolton after <laughs> after that <upbringing. laughs> Right. So,
0: that actually I, seems like see a Ruse better. Bolton move.
1: Yeah, yeah. <laughs>
0: I guess based on all that, it really makes sense why William wants to take off with John Terturo, William of Baskerville, even with the example being given of him just like butting around with lepers, which, you know, you have to be pretty holy to find that attractive.
1: Definitely. Right. I mean, those, those weeping sores and (laughs) (laughs) misshapen craniums. I mean, yeah.
0: So, you know, because of that, that he's like, you know, a legit Franciscan, not, not one of those posers.
1: Right. It's like, you know, holy, but pretty weird.
0: So he ends up going off with William and ditching his terrible father. And William is off to this abbey and is going to be the representative of the Holy Roman Emperor in some debate.
1: Well, hold on a second. We have to pass our own sad version of the of the Bechdel test.
0: Oh, yes, that's right. She appears before that.
1: The skirt, the skirt around the unnamed actress.
0: Oh, yes, yes, we do see.
1: The strangely well-dressed young lady.
0: <laughs> right, that we just find this woman in the woods, who is clearly kind of nervous around them and then they like feed her and then she sort of runs off, but also is sort of following them.
1: Right. Right. Yeah. It's it's (laughs) such a significant point for the future plot.
0: (laughs) Right. Right. And
1: we, and we, yeah, and yet she never requires more of a, you know, Of a persona, unfortunately.
0: Well, except for the fact that eventually you find out she's been raped.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, that, and and she's a witch. I mean, come on.
0: (laughs) Right, right. But yeah, but she never has like a real personality or a name. No. And yeah, so then they run into the monks. William does this whole fancy thing, impressing them with his knowledge about the abbot's missing horse and manages to, deuce, to deduce where it's gone and also its name and I like that his entire deduction about the name is ultimately based completely on the assumption that they are so uncreative that they clearly named the horse uh, Brunellus which is basically the Latin equivalent of naming a brown horse Brownie.
1: <laughs> right. <laughs> I actually love th- this sequence. Yeah. Both because it shows how uncreative the monks are in in one sense but it also reveals what the intellectual world might look like in a world where there's a hundred texts circulating like, yeah. you know and, and like if, if that's the only literary description of horses you know I'm, yeah. it's rather it's, a, it's, it's kind of a clever conceit and I like the it fact is. that they did it that they included it in the miniseries and in the movie they had assumed that the, that the viewer was not perhaps intelligent enough or engaged enough to mm-hmm. pay attention for the explanation so they had kind of like a trite explanation of William Guessing where the bathroom is,
0: right? <laughs> because a monk,
1: a monk rushes in and then he comes out looking contented, and it's like you know that's Sean Connery's Sherlock introduction is right. Poems, you know.
0: That's very Sean Connery to be honest.
1: Brilliant. <laughs> so so I love the fact that they actually tried to include something that involved like actual yeah you know,
0: actual knowledge, and I will say yeah. John Turturro does really kind of pull that scene off, and in general I think he does a great job. He's definitely one of the kind of highlights.
1: I. I really enjoyed his performance, you know. I wanted to to continuously quote Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? throughout the movie. Yeah, but... but... I never was a toad.
0: (laughs) And I also kept honestly kind of forgetting that he was supposed to be English, but...
1: (laughs) Well, you know, right. And and presumably they weren't speaking English, so... Right. Hopefully.
0: I hope they weren't speaking English. Hard to say. (laughs) They arrive, and it turns out that things are not all content and happy in the monastery, that there's instead one of the monks, Adelmo, has died in what is clearly probably a murder, maybe a suicide, definitely not an accident. He then also kind of tasks William in addition to his other things with, oh, you should help us like figure out this situation. I actually really like the abbot's move. William is like, so clearly I have to go to the light into the library because (laughs) he died in the library. And then the abbot's like, clearly a man who could have figured out all of that about a horse he's never seen can solve this murder without ever going into the library
1: right (laughs) i thought that was very clever and the the guy who play i don't remember the name of the guy who plays the abbot but he does such a good job in this series
0: he really does he's fantastic
1: being like slightly creepy without going over the top you know (laughs)
0: Yeah, he's like a little eerie. And I was definitely like trying to remember, like, does he have something to do with this? Because <laughs> again, it's been a while since I've read the book or seen the movie. Right. So I remembered who the murderer is, but that was about it. Exactly. We meet Malachi, the librarian, an actor <laughs> who I just immediately looked at and I'm like, so this dude just played in Nazi, right? And yes, he <laughs> has multiple times. Well, you know, podcast, cast, of course. <laughs> <laughs> you got to feel bad sometimes for dour looking German men that they really do just get cast. Repeatedly as Nazis.
1: You know, I would feel worse for them if if like when I was in their presence, they didn't loom so tall over <clears> me <throat> and and do things like buy me beer and, and talk to me, you know, and, uh, talk to me about you know anything under the sun. You know, but they are generally quite dour looking. I agree. Right,
0: yeah. But it turns out
1: that like they're mostly uh, get get a few liters of beer involved, and every you know, everyone's a tiny
0: Right. So there's a lot of people who their pre-beer appearance is like leading them to get typecast as Nazis poor. Guys,
1: I guess then they're just drug Nazis, right?
0: Right. <laughs> I mean, Hitler did a lot of his early meetings in some beer halls in Munich, right?
1: That's definitely true. Yes, I mean, I,
0: yeah.
1: it's always in the back of, of your mind, too. Yeah. Yeah, it's like you know, kind of the red alert for brown people and and yeah. uh, and, and Jews. You know? Yeah. <laughs> Keep your es- escape bag packed.
0: <laughs> yeah it was definitely like a thought that i had in my one trip to munich
1: yeah although i did i will tell you i felt safer there than i ever have anywhere else
0: yeah i mean you thank know.
1: you ludwig of bavaria no. yes
0: <laughs> <laughs> thanks for separating politics and religion all those years ago
1: <laughs> exactly and also you know apparently uh, the Augustiner brewery was founded hmm. during his reign so oh. come on you
0: know, yeah ludwig like, he
1: was a he was a patron of good beer
0: yeah, <laughs> we briefly see the Pope in this episode, who hears that oh, William yeah. is going to be there, and then decides to send his own fancy rep, Bernard Gui.
1: Or a Gui.
0: Yes, is this some people started to say like Gui in this like really irritating way?
1: I love it. It's like so, it's so charming, <laughs> Bernard Gui. <Gouy. laughs> it's such a like crazy exaggeration. That I, but I wonder it was like. Is it, I mean, am I just saying it wrong? <laughs>
0: I was wondering that too, but I don't think I am.
1: So my sense of it is that if he's from the south of Limoges in the first place, yeah. that's a, a region that probably has a dialect, and I and I don't really know what his native pronunciation would have been.
0: <laughs> it doesn't make sense to me in French, and it doesn't really make sense to me in Catalan either, and Occitan yeah. is close to Catalan, so...
1: I've heard it referred to as, his name as Bernard Guido before, like Guido. You know, right. Just as a, yeah. Like, huh, yeah, okay. <laughs> Bernard the Guido. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, Bernard the convenient villain, I suppose.
0: Yes. And yes, we get the implication already that he is probably going to be a villain or one of our villains. Yeah. And we also, I guess, already by the end of the first episode have our first death, Venuncio, who is the Greek Monk in residence, we learn is not not going to end well.
1: He's he's swimming with the fishes, but you know, not, not like the fishes of hell or something. You know?
0: <laughs> the fishes, but not the good <laughs> kinds like you want.
1: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the ones who swim in blood. <laughs> <I don't
0: know. laughs> he's the one that they find him like upside down in the vat of
1: congealing pig's blood, right?
0: Yeah.
1: It's really disgusting. I, yeah. I say this as a proud consumer of pork products. You know, like there's like I have nothing against well, blood sausages not the favorite of mine, but I'm not squeamish about raw meat, but that's just gross.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I very similarly, I also am a big fan of pork products, you know, terrible Jew here. (laughs) But yeah, that doesn't mean I want to be anywhere near just a vat of concealed pig's blood.
1: That was a real dick move, whoever put him in there.
0: Yeah, whoever. <laughs> the Abbott female is just like having a party, dropping jewels on the Virgin Mary statue. But well,
1: this is like my little sister and I playing with My Little Ponies when, when we were little. Right. You know, just like <laughs> I, I love that scene, but uh, I yeah. didn't like the fact that they never had any engagement. It was all implied. Yeah. In a more in, in a narrative that was more implicit, generally that might have worked better. But I actually thought they did try to explain a lot of other things, and they should have tried to explain that.
0: <laughs> right. And also I will say in general, I mean, so they made this into an eight-hour miniseries. They had previously successfully made it into a normal-length movie. There was a decent amount of filler, including an entire plot line that they introduced oh that I'll God, talk about I... later that I was not happy with.
1: And they cut out a major character.
0: Right, yeah. And like, yeah, so they like, they, there were multiple Ugh. just new plot lines that they introduced. They added a major character. I wish that they had done something to actually, I don't know, address Marian devotion in a more meaningful way other than just having right. the, the Abbott dress. Dress up the Virgin Mary statue, but I did like that scene.
1: I, I thought that was an extraordinary visual piece of the yeah. scene where he's adorning the Virgin and yeah, there's like the, the kind of uh, visceral piety. Yeah. But if they if they had been able to connect that more explicitly, perhaps, to a scene later in the in the in the show where the abbot tries to get Adsa to swear on this gem and he goes yeah. on and on about gems. And it's like this idea of wealth. In the Benedictine Order, and the and the yeah. what it represented, this idea of adornment and adorning the the church with wealth and, yes. and gems, and you know, and and how important that is. I mean, they, they could have spent a little time on that. Since you're right, they did. They, <laughs> there's plenty of time for nonsense in this show,
0: right? Right. And the really fabulous line that he says to the Virgin, "You alone are were, are worthy of all the beauties of this world." Right. And I just thought that was such a fantastic line. And yeah, I really would have liked to see more being done with that. No theology, but back to the murder.
1: Yeah, well, you know, <laughs> back to the juicy bits.
0: <laughs> yeah. William is talking with Severinus, who is the uh, the herbalist, I guess, of the monastery. Oh, yeah. And uh, William kind of implies, so dissection would probably be the way to go. And Severinus initially just reacts with utter horror, like, you are not suggesting that I open the body. And then William just goes basically like, well, can you, though? And <laughs> Severinus is just like, well, I went to medical school at Padua. Of course I can. Well,
1: whether or not it's a sin, my ego is involved now.
0: <laughs> exactly. The second he questions his uh, his abilities, essentially all of the like moral objections to dissection go immediately out the window. Right. They dissect him and figure out that he was probably poisoned. At least part of which they did not even have to do by dissecting because they find the, his lackened fingers and tongue. But I guess they also find something in his innards.
1: It was like, yeah, scorched or something. Right. <laughs> or...
0: And go through Severinus's cabinets and find that one bottle has been emptied. The label is in Chinese, which William easily reads, and I am calling bullshit on anyone in this monastery reading Chinese.
1: Yeah, you know, and I gotta say, I'm calling bullshit on the poison being like ascribed to like the mysterious East in any sense. That too. like, come on, man. But, you know, that that poison (laughs) didn't need to come from China to be exotic. You know, it's like, it could could have been too much lobelia or something, but I guess it had to be the power of a thousand scorpions, but... um.
0: Right, exactly. It's a
1: Chinese label to me, but like, well, you know, why are they getting thrown under the bus for this?
0: (laughs) Right, it's like some weird kind of Orientalist bullshit that, like, of course, the poison that's right. like the poison to end all poisons. Like that's, of course, it has to come from the mysterious East.
1: Yeah, it's like this is this is some creepy Italian stuff. <laughs> <laughs> right. It's like they've been making this poison on top of this mountain for a thousand years, man. <laughs> <laughs> it's the only place you can get it.
0: <laughs> Stop throwing Italian poisons under the bus. Italian poisons are just as good as the foreign stuff. My
1: uncle and his wife went to Italy a long time ago, and they said they went up to this one monastery, and they were expecting to get wine. They got there, and they were selling beauty products. So why not one with poison? Exactly. I mean, yeah, you know, it's a growth market. Maybe I don't know.
0: Yeah, <laughs> monks can do whatever they put their mind to. Yeah, come on. <laughs> Adso so, also at some point, is just Jorge is trying so hard. The uh, so the like elderly blind monk Jorge is just, like, aggressively trying to talk to him, and and Adzo is working so hard to not talk to him, which you cannot blame him, because even though, spoiler alert, we do not know yet that Jorge is a murderer, he is, like, kind (laughs) of an asshole.
1: He's definitely a giant dickhead, and any conversation he enters immediately sucks. Yeah. He's one of those people who ruins a party immediately upon entering. (laughs) As as you see at various points, indeed, in the show. Oh, yeah. (laughs) In the first movie, they had uh, the character of Ubertino da Cassidy, He's a, mm-hmm. Who was a real life figure. Right. And he was played so over the top and campily mm-hmm. and in such a creepily, <laughs> kind of pederastic fashion. Right. But in some sense, actually, in a, in, a, in a truer form to the book. Yeah. Whereas just simply eliminating his character and having Jorge follow Adza around trying to talk to him all the time <laughs> right. is completely ridiculous. Yeah. <laughs> Because the point of the Ubertino character in the book, at least in terms of Adso, is that he kind of has this creepy discourse with Adso about like the Blessed Virgin versus like the whore of Babylon and what's the difference between the two. Right. But his problem is, is that everything he says is like arousing (laughs) Adso. Right. (laughs) The implication is that Ubertino is a little overheated himself. Right.
0: Yeah. Whereas Jorge is just like dour as fuck.
1: Exactly. And the, the idea that he'd be interested in talking with him. With the novice is
0: suspect. Right? It's like, what, what's your deal? We see briefly the Occitan girl again in this episode. That's right. So that we can find the only other thing that we know about her, which is that we get to have a flashback of how her family was murdered and she got raped.
1: It's par for the course. I mean, of course.
0: You don't need a name to be raped.
1: To me, it's extraordinary that she manages to teach the word for house in Occitan or home, right? But not her name.
0: (laughs) Right. And also, I'm pretty sure he says his name at some point.
1: I do think that's correct. Yes.
0: And she never (laughs) says hers. Well, he never asks. Of course he doesn't. Why would he? It's
1: like, well, this whole lack of conversation thing turns out to be very convenient for me. Doesn't it? I'll just read a couple of things I find in the library about love and then and, you know, project my emotions onto this, onto this refugee. <laughs>
0: this, yeah, this, poor, <laughs> this like, poor, traumatized woman.
1: I did want to mention the scene where the librarian Malachi comes into the into the uh, infirmary or the an herb area or wherever and, and is yelling at Severinus in German. Right. Yeah. They have a German conversation about William And I love the fact that even a thousand years ago, the implication is that nobody could understand German and that it's just an amazing (laughs) thing when it's like, you you understand German? Wow. I'm I'm sorry, I wouldn't have been talking about you right in front of you if if I had known. Right.
0: That's a timeless (laughs) experience, (laughs) talking about somebody assuming they don't speak your language and then realizing that you've insulted them or that they know they've been insulted.
1: It's happened to me so many times. It's Fair enough, because German is a tongue twister.
0: Oh, yeah. No, I mean, my my so, spoken right. German is non-existent, so. Or my spoken yeah. German is limited to, like, ordering beer successfully, I guess I would say.
1: Well, because they don't have any R rolling in the German language, really. At least not, you know, that I've ever encountered. <laughs> it's, it's a language that I can actually speak for. Spanish with its R's, it's very, very difficult for me.
0: Maybe that's my issue with German. Maybe I keep wanting to roll my R's that I'm not supposed yeah. to. <laughs> we also meet Remigio Salerer and find out oh, yeah. lots about his past because he has a fun flashback of hanging out with the heretic Delcino and his lover slash co-preacher Margarita. And apparently he's got a thing for Margarita and then also kind of makes a promise to protect Dolcino and Margarita's daughter, Anna. Right. We also learn that both of them were killed by Bernard Guy, who goes with the line "Kill them all, and God will recognize His own," right. which I guess we've just stolen from the Albigensian Crusade, a century or so just before. a Little
1: plagiarism. It makes sense in the medieval context. It's like, well, uh, yeah, I heard this great line somewhere. This is—I've been waiting to use this forever.
0: I know, right? <laughs> Somebody else said this when talking about heresy. I can use that line too now. Yeah, <laughs>
1: they used this line when they burned my ancestors. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I recognize that. Limoges is, is not is not right in the path of the Albigensian Crusade, right. but still it's close. But
0: still, yeah, close. <laughs> oh, Beno. Yeah, Benno.
1: Blondie. Oh my god. He gosh. is so blonde. The, yeah, it's like the, the Draco Malfoy of the series.
0: I know, right? <laughs> we meet him. He gets very chatty and starts whispering about, quote, sodomites.
1: Yes, as one does.
0: Uh-huh.
1: <laughs> what, what do you do on a Saturday evening? I mean, it's like, right? <laughs> it's sodomite city around here. Come on.
0: Right. And in particular, that Malachi and Berengar seem to have something of yeah. a reputation for their involvement with one another. And also with basically yep. using books to seduce other men in the Abbey. Yeah. And that Adelmo, in particular particular <laughs> was seduced by baron Ger in this manner adzo's like shock like sodomy in a monastery my friend where it's... else do you think there's sodomy
1: right exactly <laughs> <laughs> unless it's in your dad's camp <laughs> You know, who knows?
0: Like <laughs> monasteries are part like the center of medieval gay culture, let's be honest.
1: Well, exactly <laughs> totally. And and you have to think that at some point by that point he's encountered the rule of Benedict, where they talk about having the lights on for the novices and uh, the novices don't go to the bathroom by themselves. And it's like, what do you think these rules are about, young man?
0: Right. <laughs>
1: <laughs> you know, making sure that the that the scary monsters don't get you. Well yeah, right. well yes. But you know what, what kind?
0: We also have our first efforts at this point to sneak into the creepy library and find, right. I guess the the book that Venancia was looking at, which is the book that they knew that that they knew that Anselmo at some point also had been looking at. Right. But the book is taken, and William also loses his glasses, which he is very sad about.
1: Yes, a major plot point. <laughs> yes.
0: <laughs> As I was like trying to act super tough, and he's like, "I'm warning you, I was a soldier in the Imperial Army," and it's like, no one is buying this.
1: I know. It's like, no, you aren't, dude.
0: I mean, technically, like he was, but like, not really?
1: I don't know. It's like, there, it's being a camp follower account.
0: Tagging along with your dad, who is a commander in the army, is not quite the same. His dad seemed to expect yeah. that he was going to be killing people, but he doesn't seem to be doing a very good job of it in the battle scene. The only thing we saw of him in the battle scene is basically just that, like, he's kind of trying to give the last rights to people that he finds half dead.
1: I mean, I guess being a chaplain counts as being in the armed forces, so, I mean, you know, fair enough. I, I, yeah. I withdraw my objection. Soldier feels a little strong to me still, but...
0: Yeah, it... <laughs> (laughs) and it's like and he's using it as a threat look at me I'm dangerous and it's like buddy no you're not
1: you probably shouldn't shriek it in a quailing voice right
0: yeah it doesn't help I also enjoy that they decided to stick in I don't remember this but maybe this was in the book or the movie that William goes like by the beard of Merlin as his oath and as it's like who is like a magician from my country it's like all right. I guess we just like need to like stick in an Arthurian reference so the people who know nothing else about the middle ages will recognize something that
1: is a crowd pleaser I was (laughs) yep I, I had to I had to applaud.
0: <laughs> we also get to hang out a bit with Nardo, who is the elderly, slightly maybe not in his best stages of life's monk who starts talking about the book of revelation and i also loved how adzo acts like it's just like weird shocking intriguing coincidence that there are verses from the book of revelation in the library and now Alinardo is quoting it it's the 14th century everybody's quoting the book of (laughs) revelation all the time it's not special exactly
1: exactly like northern italy is consumed by war they're 10 years away from the great famine
0: yeah like this is not as much of a clue or shouldn't be as much of a clue at least as he thinks it is
1: but but it is rather shocking. Shocking if if you're a dunderhead. (laughs)
0: Right. Which Adzo kind of is. Yeah. Adzo also finds the room in the library, which has creepy drug smoke, and hallucinates an iguana and also his father yelling at him for being responsible for killing his mother who died in childbirth.
1: Yeah, I mean, you know, generally the babies are always... They're always responsible for that, you know. Damn babies.
0: And also, I do like that we can add another nameless dead woman to the cast.
1: Come on, if this show is good for one thing, it's almost representing women in a way that's almost, you know, as offensive as other movies.
0: Yep. Instead, so it's like,
1: well, instead of being offensive, let's just not have them.
0: Yep, that's better. I mean,
1: it does sound like a very monastic approach. Oh, yes. <laughs> to be there.
0: True. William rescues Adzo, who is like kind of high for a while, and him like being like high at, at mass is actually kind of entertaining.
1: Yeah, it was actually pretty good. <laughs> Those guys are creepy enough when you're not high.
0: Right. right? <laughs> this is not a good trip.
1: Like, Benno, stop staring at me, bro.
0: <laughs> <laughs> you gotta stop, man. You're too blonde. It's weird. <laughs> Adzo also starts becoming curious about heresy after his uh, hearing some stuff from uh, Remigio and uh, Remigio's companion, Salvatore, who is the other person who's maybe somewhat kind of mentally disabled.
1: Which, uh, yeah, we should definitely talk about Salvatore.
0: We should. I have a lot of feelings about how, what ends up happening with that character.
1: But I do want to say before the fact that this show so baldly links Adzo's interest in heresy with like a 10 second conversation with Remigio, it's, it's like, like, like as if the show agrees with Bernard Guy. Right.
0: No, <laughs> that like, like, if you, well, if, you people, hear, if you hear about just, heresy, then you are immediately going to want to start doing research and like become a heretic. Five
1: seconds in the company of a heretic and you are like deep, your, your and, ball's like, deep. Let you me know? read about it's the
0: like, heresy. Right?
1: Oh my gosh. I mean, I, I just, I, I think it was a little subtler in the book. Maybe. Right.
0: He also gets like a 15 fucking minute lecture from Malachi before he's allowed to read a book about how heresy is yeah, bad. Yeah.
1: It's, it's, it's almost as if Malachi had been a parent in a past life. It's like, well. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, I, as the parent of a fourteen-year-old, I, I, I have to like also like offer like a you know I I can't I can't cast any stones here. <laughs> I'm like, well, son, I think that you should do this, that, and the other thing, but at the end, he to me down.
0: <laughs> Speaking of people who are doing like awkward parental talks, Jorge talking to Adzo about sex is like the most unpleasant thing I've heard in my entire life. Like, you should be hired out to give like sex talks to teens at high school. Right? <laughs>
1: I don't know. I mean, my concern about about that is that is that Jorge would probably poison the entire school. You know, <laughs> True.
0: one kid would laugh, and then he's just like, "Well, we're done here."
1: It's like everybody read this book.
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> I've got something for you.
0: <laughs> Jorge's sex talk, however, is unsuccessful, and Adzo goes off to flirt in the woods. It's
1: like obviously, let, talking about sex seems to, uh, as they would say, inflame his pudenda. So
0: yes. <laughs> she's like sort of trying to teach him Occitan, but does not introduce herself you know that's fine but she does teach him how to imitate a bird so I guess that's important
1: I, I wonder if I'm the only person who wanted to learn how to, to make that bird call <laughs> but I, I failed to do it
0: I kind of do it was cool but with the exception of the fact that it did just annoy me that I'm like did they have that in place of having him know her name because otherwise he could call her name when he entered the woods and now it just it's fine know, right? that he doesn't have to because he can like make a fucking bird call instead <laughs>
1: (laughs) To be fair, I realize that the quote: The girl did not have a name in the book.
0: Yes, that one. That one's on Umberto Eco, unfortunately.
1: But they changed. They changed other parts of this series. Why not give her a name, right? Who can what, 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 Would it have been so hard?
0: I mean, they added this like lengthy backstory about her family being murdered and her getting almost raped, which is also not in the book, so they could give her a name.
1: I actually didn't like the fact that she was a, like a refugee from not well, not from Italy, because it, it didn't make sense to me why she was there.
0: Yeah, I was gonna talk about this word later. But it's- really weird to me like how did she like get that far
1: and why did you go there
0: yeah no it just it <laughs> just know. seems Idiot. so odd that she like wandered all the way to italy
1: although it was super cool that she was speaking Occitan. I was like yes i think perhaps the first time i've ever heard someone speak Occitan on in like in, the, in a televised broadcast you know
0: yeah yeah so that was that cool. I'm aware of
1: at least yeah. yeah,
0: he tries to kiss her, but gets rejected and still does not know her name.
1: And his, <laughs> his skills as a soldier are definitely revealed to be <laughs> to be Minor. Qu- quaking, quivering in fear.
0: <laughs> oh yeah, I'm a soldier in the Imperial Army.
1: She's a badass.
0: She could have been a cool character. I'm not sure it yes. quite gets that far, but I think she was a kernel of maybe an interesting character. Yes. That did not quite pan out.
1: It's almost as if they could have combined the other half-hearted female character that they made up. <laughs> yep, <laughs> into her character.
0: Yep. Speaking of female characters who are just done a disservice to over the course of this show, we get to just gratuitously watching a flashback of Bernard Gui torturing Margarita. Yes, which is in this for no reason, including this gross that he promises to quote butcher that wonderful body of yours. I really hate not that there weren't assorted monks who I'm sure were turned on by women and uh, might have done inappropriate things as a result but I find the insistence essentially that all of them do to be very frustrating and in particular Bernard Guy, I'm sorry, I think he's just like a dour
1: asshole. I probably should have mentioned in in the, in the in my intro that, I, that I've that i written an article about Bernard Guy and yeah. the article that I wrote about him which is forthcoming at some point in the future but it's about a uh, saint's life about this guy that he compares to a crocodile which Sarah you read before
0: yeah that's right I have read that
1: yeah but you don't get the Sense that Bernard is a is a vicious man. It's more that he's not particularly creative. Yeah. The thing that is really frightening is his inquisitor manual.
0: Oh yeah.
1: His manual for inquisitors is very frightening, and I guess it depends on if you read <laughs> if you read the lines with like an evil sneer on your face. <laughs> I guess that you could you could read that in a number of ways, right? You could also yeah. read that as a bureaucrat who's simply trying to communicate what he believes to be the strategy of, of rooting out heresy.
0: One of the things that I I actually find so horrifying about his Inquisitor's Manual is that it reads to me as being very kind of cold and clinical. Right. And I think in some ways that just very cold bureaucratic approach is almost more terrifying than him being yes. this kind of I don't know, creature of like passion and sexual frustration and that being at the kind of root of his iterative heretics and women and whoever else.
1: I think that his, the fixity of his worldview is frightening enough. Exactly. At least for me.
0: <laughs> I think there's so much that you can do with Bernard Gui and him as being this genuinely frightening character without making him sadistic and creepy in this particular way.
1: Well, I mean, you know, if there are any Hollywood producers out there, I'd love to write a like a bumbling detective series about Bernard Gee. You, know? <laughs> <laughs> you know, kind of like Brother Cadfail meets, meets Blackadder or something. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I, I don't have any reason to believe that he was necessarily catching any heretics or anything. You uh. know, but I mean, he was actually a, a quite a skilled author of Saints' Lives, I guess. Yeah. If, if, if that's a skill, you know, you could sit, he could sit around and dictate or... I don't I don't know if he wrote them himself, but I imagine he dictated them to a scribe. Yeah. So he was good at dictating things to other people. Yeah. I mean that's that that takes work. (laughs) Yeah.
0: We have Margarita who has been, you know, being tortured and, you know, we obviously know she she doesn't make it. We do however have one named female character who as of episode three is still alive. And this is Margarita's daughter, Anna, who is now uh, about the same age as the nameless Occitan girl, I would say. Right. <laughs> who knows that Bernard Gouy killed her parents and wants to kill him. I don't know why this random peasant heretic is really good at military stuff.
1: Well, yeah, that was not clear. It isn't, no. I, I do think it's a big deal that they introduced a woman with a name in this book, you know, because like, right. they the, are in the this, in this series, sorry. That matters, but she's strange and, and not fleshed out enough, I think. Yeah. Yeah. To actually really warrant her presence in the story. I think, yeah. though, one of the things that it happens so quickly that I, I've watched this series twice now, but the first time I missed this as well, actually, her family is killed by Bernard Guy's heretic, um, our little army. When they're on the way to the monastery, okay. so while they're on the way to the monastery, I think that they decide just to stop through the town. Do, do you remember when he drags the the, the, yes. the two naked people out of the tent? And of course, the naked woman is the witch, and so you know, right, etc. etc. But they, I can't remember the the name of the town that they that she said she was from. But yes. I remember he was like, oh yeah, I remember that place, you know.
0: Right, that's the heritage. <laughs> and then town. the next scene
1: we see is them burning that town up, and then she shows up again and her family. Right. Right. instead or something. So I think that was the initial impetus to chase them but she turns out to be the daughter and I think she was hiding in the woods or something and saw them burn her parents. Yeah. I mean nevertheless we never do learn why she's Robin Hood.
0: (laughs) Right exactly and like it's just such a weird turn to take and very much also kind of goes into this thing that I have that female characters can't be presented as having agency unless they're presented as having agency in these very anachronistic but also like in some ways like stereotypically masculine ways. Right. That like she can only have agency if she's this woman warrior figure. Yeah, and I find that very irritating.
1: Well, and it, it for me it just didn't it didn't work with the tone of the story. Yeah, and I, I mean it's like they they can change if they wanted to, you know they obviously can change the tone of the story. Right. To be what made this, the story actually interesting was not the violence and right gratuitous <laughs> torture. Yeah. You know, kind
0: of One of the things about the book is that despite obviously there's violence and that there are like a number of murders committed, the yeah. book is really not an action book for the most part in that way. At all. And then the movie isn't either. And the show, I feel like, is really kind of trying to make it an action show. Yeah. And the way they do it and the way they try to weave that in just almost never works.
1: It's like you could always see where it had been forced into the script by Fiat. Yeah.
0: <laughs> the seams of what they're interpolating into the original narrative are just very obvious, and it's not well done. Right. I understand that there had to have been filler. It was very much, I think, a choice that the filler had to be, like, action-y filler, because that's what people expect of the Middle Ages, is more violence. Yeah. But I wish that that was not what they had done. I would have rather had more theology.
1: I mean, I would have rather have had theology, and to be fair, I would have even preferred, if they would spent the very beginning of the show, just have, maybe another 30 seconds of the battle scene, yeah. but have a narrative overlaying what what was at stake there, right. And maybe understanding because they they kind of do a half-assed job of, <laughs> of talking about yeah the the Italian communes and yeah. their role, which is an important aspect of the story. It's like you know the monastery. Or many of the monks in the monastery feel threatened by the rise of the communes as a center of economic yeah. force and yeah. things that nerds care about. But yeah.
0: Right. <laughs> I,
1: I, I don't know. I, I really do. I do love. I do love the story.
0: This is definitely one of my favorite books for a long time. Yeah. Bernard Gui finally shows up at the monastery, and we've got some tensions between him and William over the question of heretic burning, including right. this weird conversation where Gui is like, "Oh, I mean, you've burned heretics before," and then William's like, "No, I haven't," because apparently he managed to like like, I don't know, never actually condemn somebody as an Inquisitor. And then Griecos, it was just a figure of speech. I'm like, it's not though, because that's actually a thing that you do in terms of, like, condemning <laughs> well, people to be burned, at least.
1: Well, right, I mean, but, you know, if you're only condemning them, if you're, you know, remitting them to the secular arm, I mean, come
0: on. We will see there is a difference between the two, but still, <laughs> be calling it a figure of speech. Right. It's not, though. William and Remigio chat after William catches Remigio sneaking out with some wine and a lady. <laughs> He's like, I don't want you to think I spend my nights drinking and fornicating. It's like, mm. But y- you do, though, I guess. I mean, it's fine. Yeah, but... it's
1: like, you know, I mean...
0: And do your thing.
1: I guess you want a different reputation than the one you deserve.
0: <laughs> <laughs> right. I mean, you know, fair, but...
1: You know, a heretic who fornicates with women. I mean, whatever, you know.
0: <laughs> yeah, you know. And it's fine. Like, I-, I don't mind, but I'd rather hang out with him than Bernard Gouy, but, uh
1: <laughs> Exactly. It sounds like a better company than the abbot.
0: Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Me too might be pretty high on the list of people in this monastery that I'd get a drink with.
1: I wonder about Severinus. I bet he has some good things in the infirmary. Oh.
0: Oh, yeah. He's pretty chill. He, he went pretty fast to the like, yeah, no, I will just, I'll dissect this dude.
1: Yeah. I mean, he's like, well, let's put up a token of resistance.
0: <laughs> right. Exactly. Like he just wants to be able to say that like, no, William made me.
1: Plus, I mean, most of the other monks are just like outright scary. <laughs>
0: right. And then speaking of other monks, Berengar. I don't think I would have wanted to have a drink with him, but now I'll never have the opportunity because he's now dead and is found naked in one of the baths. And I was very entertained by the fact that there's a very artfully placed reflection of, of a window which is clearly just there so that we can't see his dick
1: are you sure his dick just wasn't shining with holy light <laughs> <laughs> i guess i i need to rewatch that scene though
0: <laughs> they said that that adolmo was seduced by the book but maybe it was just there glowing dick
1: In bernard guy's apocryphal life of, of Berengar, you know it's a clear sign <laughs> of his <sympathy. laughs> His dick was lit up like a Christmas tree.
0: (laughs) The halo (laughs) was just a little lower than it sometimes is. I want to see that iconography. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) They also then start to reflect on whether the deaths are inspired by the seven trumpets of the apocalypse, which would make this the original version of the movie Seven, basically.
1: That's right.
0: At the top of our next episode, they find William's lenses hidden inside Berringer's habits, so that's one mystery solved of who that was in the library that night, but then also find that Berringer's finger and tongues, Vencios the are Black. Right. The papal delegation arrives and start talking about how, like, oh, we can't start the debate until Bernard Gui shows up and has his fancy armed escort. William is not thrilled about any of this. We also learn more about Salvatore's past. Right. Salvatore, we don't know that much about, like, his uh, childhood quite or anything like that. But at least by the time he was, I think, based on what the timing's supposed to be, at least by the time he was kind of a young man. Yeah. We see that he's being tortured and treated as a literal dog right. by some obnoxious Italian nobleman. He clearly is, I would say, I mean, the way that, you know, he talks and his like odd, like he kind of goes back and forth between multiple languages and clearly is not exactly fluent in anything and clearly is presented, I would say, as being kind of mentally disabled in some way. Right. And then also has this kind of past of being abused and Remigio saved him and saved his life. And that's why he's so loyal to Remigio. Yeah. I think that there are probably things that could be said about his character, even as it originally appears in the book. But there are choices that we will increasingly get to, I think some starting in this episode about what they do with Salvatore's character that I think are really questionable in terms of being depictions of one of the very few characters with a disability
1: i think in the book salvatore occupies this more ambiguous position as one of the victims of kind of the endemic wars in northern italy in yeah. the late 13th early 14th centuries and he's supposed to be one of these displaced people who had been like everywhere and nowhere and yeah his only education was the road and he'd been a rascal and a friar and a warrior and all like he was supposed to like, in the book, he's presented as kind of having been everything and nothing in this weird way. Yeah. He was the representative of the simple, I guess, yeah. in the monastery.
0: Surrounded by all of these learned men, right? Right.
1: And I do think the depiction of him in, in the TV series, it, like, introduces a dimension that, that is more problematic, even. And, and, and you, you might yeah. be right, i have to reread the book and see if the kernel of the problem is actually in the in the story's depiction of him.
0: The, the language thing, at least, is definitely in the book, and that, to me, hints that there being some kind of development. Mental disability. I mean, because even if you're not educated and even if you move around a lot, I don't think that people learn.
1: To me, it's like that's like a magical ability. <laughs> it's,
0: like, it's just I so odd. Even, yeah,
1: yeah. I could not I couldn't quite reconcile that with anything other than like the whimsy of echoes.
0: And maybe that's a problem. Is that it's, it's just kind of a whimsical creation of a figure who probably actually couldn't exist at all in some ways. Right. Uh, <laughs> and is kind of a symbol, and but that in doing so, kind of accidentally even kind of created this disabled character, but not necessarily in a great way. Right. And it gets worse in the show in that, and this is something we already see in this episode, that he builds a rape trap yes. for the nameless Occitan woman who he sees in the woods at some point.
1: Yeah, I mean, like, it's explicitly a rape trap. It's terrible. It is a trap
0: to catch her so that he can then rape her. Yeah. Adzo rescues her. And then they like start to make out, but then she tries to kill him because of her rape trauma from the previous time that she got raped. Because yeah. of course that's a plot line because and, God forbid you have a woman who hasn't been raped in a medieval piece of media. Right. Then Salvatore has this original incel bullshit where he's all like, oh, like uh-huh. she loves Adzo and not me because like you are beautiful and I am not. And it's like, okay. okay. like
1: Neoliberalism sucks <laughs> and the sexual revolution. Yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, and so it's this like very uncomfortable thing that yes. they do with him. There's also some more fun stuff in the library. They get to have some nice shout outs of cool works from antiquity and yeah. the Middle Ages. Right. Got Isidore of Seville. They've got Avicenna. They got some good stuff. Azo, of course, finds some quote about love somewhere because Azo yeah. thinks everything is about his dick now.
1: <laughs> yeah, well, it's almost like he's a teenage boy.
0: <laughs> I know. But it's like, buddy, you're solving a murder. <laughs>
1: But but the riddle of his dick.
0: <laughs> that's the most important riddle of all.
1: Every teenage boy tries to solve it again and again.
0: <laughs> There's also a creepy staircase that screams, so that's fun. Yeah. And we also get to see Malachi mourning over the body of Berengar and this deeply evocative language, including quoting the Song of Songs in a way that he's actually placing himself in the position of the female beloved and referring it to Berengar's in the terms of the male beloved. Right. That was a really interesting scene. I I actually like that they included that.
1: I thought that was pretty cool, but come on. Don't you think that Malachi could have had better game in the monastery? (laughs) If if that's the deal that you make to get your assistant librarian. Berengar, I'm sure he cleans up well, but we haven't seen it in the show. (laughs) <laughs> we need to send him to Ibiza for a few weeks and get some sunlight on that kid, and then come back and let's see if he's worth the song of songs. I'm, I'm just saying, Jerry is out here. Even Pee Malfoy is a, like a, a better c- candidate than, than him.
0: He's not that much better though. Like this is, this is not a group of monks to it. Like this is not a sexy group of monks on the whole.
1: <laughs> <laughs> They're not as scary as the ones from the movie.
0: <laughs> fair but like Baron Garcia is not how I would imagine the male beloved of the song of songs but I mean everyone else at this time is imagining the male beloved of the song of songs just Jesus so (laughs) (laughs) I did think there was actually a kind of nice scene it was a a
1: touching scene yeah I agree yeah
0: it was a, a touching scene there's a lot in terms of how gay relationships are depicted throughout which mostly kind of emphasizes it as being kind of unsavory and predatory. Which
1: I wasn't as clear about whether, like how that would have actually been experienced in the monastery.
0: Right, exactly. Because not to say that there couldn't have been unsavory or predatory relationships, but it doesn't sit with me well, the idea that they all were necessarily unsavory and predatory.
1: It's not clear to me that everybody understood them that way necessarily.
0: Exactly. I think the fact that they very much kind of emphasize that at least Malachi had really genuine feeling for Baron, I mean, that he was in love with him and that he has this kind of very touching scene of mourning for him, I think is actually a nice, inclusion.
1: Yeah, I agree with that. We
0: have some more of Anna who uh basically <laughs> is had been like injured in her attempt to kill Bernard Gui and then just like drags her bleeding ass around until she eventually collapses. What an exciting plot line this female character has.
1: The one time you need your arrow to hit its target.
0: Right, and it's like implied that she's good at her shit, but she can't hit Bernard Gui. He's like an easy target comparatively.
1: It's like he's tall. Come on, there's a lot of frame there.
0: <laughs> he's tall. He's not moving as fast as your average deer.
1: Right he's over there kneeling on rocks and shit he can't move
0: yeah I feel like she should have gotten him or she doesn't because you can't kill Bernard Gui halfway through the show
1: even as a historian at that point I was like just kill that guy I don't <laughs> you know?
0: right yeah it's like oh,
1: whatever we could just we could just skip to a happy ending
0: I know like can we at least give her character a point like
1: yeah well I mean it's just funny that it, well not funny but I mean it's like well tellingly the one named female character shows up, screws up very quickly, then gets shot <laughs> shot with an arrow.
0: But then does meet at the, the top of the next episode the one other female character. Yeah. And at first I had this moment, I'm like, could this pass the Bechtel test? And then I'm like, nope, it never can because one Definitely of them has not. no name. Yeah. <laughs> there are bits that would pass if she had a name, but she doesn't. It so. is
1: impressive that she somehow managed to avoid describing her lover while she was talking about herbs. I mean, something that very few women in Hollywood can do.
0: (laughs) I know, right? It's so hard not to talk about men.
1: I mean, you know. (laughs) Speaking of men,
0: no. speaking <laughs> of men, uh, because this show has mostly men. I
1: was like, "Well, who else could we possibly speak about next?"
0: <laughs> exactly. Even if I have a woman guest, this uh, this podcast never passes the Bechtel test,
1: right?
0: <laughs> because all the movies are about men, right? We arrives and the arguments start over dinner about he gives some like fancy gifts to the abbot, and there's like right. a fancy crucifix. And Francis can start to like make fun of the fancy yeah, crucifix. Yeah, Jesus,
1: Jesus has a coin purse. <laughs>
0: Right, yes. <laughs> Which is great. This is what I want more of. Oh, man, right? I want more of the Franciscans fucking like making fun of the Benedictines.
1: Right? I want more controversy about Bling Jesus.
0: Oh, yeah, exactly. I want commentary on Bling Jesus. What I don't necessarily want more of are like Franciscans taking their shoes off at the dinner table because I don't care if you're making a point. That's still kind of gross.
1: I wanted to know who his sandal maker was. <laughs> (laughs)
0: Right? In good shape.
1: I figure that nobody at that table has ever washed their hands, so. Oh,
0: no. Oh, no, no. I mean, it's a
1: show about the Middle Ages, so, you know.
0: (laughs) Right, so of course everyone has to be very dirty. Despite the fact that we see baths multiple times, still everyone has to be very dirty. (laughs) Right. Although in defense of the Franciscans, I think they, like, just got there, so maybe they didn't have time to take a bath. Right. Malachi decides to throw in his lot with Gui and inform him of various things, including that he has Remigio's secret letters. We get a weird fucking scene of Bernard cutting some little crosses into his skin.
1: Right. Let's just include a cutting scene.
0: Yep, which is a choice. William then also informs the Franciscans about Trimigio and Salvatore's past as heretics, which the Franciscans are very nervous about because the Daltonians and the Franciscans are sometimes linked This is the point to which the Franciscans are being accused of heresy, and in particular kind of linked with heresies that emphasize poverty. Right. So they're very nervous about this. This is also the episode that has the scene that I was so disappointed by so that they have the like debate about laughter about whether Christ laughed
1: the greatest of all debates
0: yes and I actually remember like I loved this scene in the book I loved yes. this scene in the movie
1: exactly and I felt like
0: they really cut it short so he's having this debate Jorge and William William makes this great point about how St. Lawrence made a joke I love this like I, right. this is like my favorite <laughs> like one of my like top 10 favorite saint fact, Yeah. is that St. Lawrence said while he was like on a grill he said turn me over I'm done on this right. side <laughs> I love you, St. Lawrence. Right. I believe he actually is the patron saint of comedians, according to the Catholic Church today. Oh,
1: really? Fantastic. Which
0: I love. But we have to follow Adzo, who leaves to go awkwardly flirt in the middle of the debate. And I'm like, yeah. I don't want to watch like Adzo have sex. I want to watch this debate.
1: Yeah, he was just very disappointing in that scene.
0: Yeah, like I'm disappointed in Adzo for leaving, and I'm disappointed in the show creators for making us leave with Adzo to watch Adzo bone instead of listening to the rest of the debate
1: yeah i mean on paper it sounds very intro win you know but
0: but yeah (laughs) but it's not it's
1: it's like you guys listening out there if you haven't heard people debate about whether christ left you haven't lived.
0: It's great. It's so interesting.
1: <laughs> it actually is.
0: It really is. And yeah, and they really cut it short. And I'm so sad about I
1: it. I totally agree with you. And so, in the movie and in the book, it comes much earlier. And the mm. emphasis on the importance of whether Christ laughed or not as part of what's happening in the Abbey yeah. is introduced much earlier. Whereas here, it's not necessarily even clear that it's important.
0: <laughs> right. It seems like this odd throwaway scene or
1: something to start happening as Adso sneaks out to go. And-
0: exactly. And as we'll see, it ultimately becomes central, actually, to what's going on in the Abbey.
1: Exactly. Right. It's at the heart of the problem. Right. And so I didn't understand why they didn't include that debate, this com- this conversation in the place where they did in the book and the movie, which is when William and Adso first go into the scriptorium.
0: Right. Exactly. Because
1: then it kind of introduces that these guys think about this stuff and that for them is not an esoteric question, it's part of their world that's really important.
0: Yeah, and the way that it's introduced, I think, really does make it ultimately seem like it's this kind of meaningless, esoteric question. To modern people, I guess it is. As a medievalist, I understand that it isn't, and I think it's fascinating. That's the great thing about the book, is that Umberto Eco realized that this was important, and that ultimately, that like it makes sense that he made the mystery hinge on this. And it's just a really disappointing choice that also, I think, makes the conclusion make less sense if you're watching this without having seen the movie or read the book.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I agree completely, because this is just such an aside in the narrative. And I think it is such an esoteric and for modern people, largely irrelevant question. But if we want to understand the Middle Ages, of course, we have to understand that for these people who were part of the intellectual intelligentsia of their of their era, this was a central question about how they approached and thought about the world. And it can actually teach us a lot about what they were doing, what they thought they were doing and why. Right. And So from that perspective, it was a missed opportunity, right? And then, yeah.
0: Exactly. I think its narrative force is also diminished by the fact that then we have another debate, which while I think also interesting and important in terms of how we understand the Middle Ages is not central to what is ultimately, kind like what it's like, it's not central to the murder plot, obviously. And that that debate is given much more importance. It's very kind of emphasized as this is the kind of beginnings of the conversations between the papal representatives and the franciscans with this debate about essentially whether christ owned earthly goods and then devolved into an actual brawl
1: that was actually a a, a very fun scene oh yeah i think in the book the character who starts basically shouting at the cardinal that he's you know just like a piece of shit is the bishop of kaffir or something yeah i believe there is a medieval manuscript that that purports the Bishop of Caffeta have been, you know, pretty much an asshole. <laughs> 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 kind of on the Franciscan side, inflammatory. Yeah. Um, and, and, and not very committed to the facts. But that uh, the, the, the thing that was fascinating to me about that scene is this window into what the character of the church should be. Yeah. The, that's the underlying theme of why Ludwig the Bavarian is in northern Italy fighting a war in the first place, right? Right. So, like, yeah. that was an opportunity, again, to show people a real window on to like what is at stake for medieval people and in some ways again it ends up feeling like window dressing for this other part of the story which is like the the more superficial aspects.
0: Yeah. Meanwhile Salvatore sets up his fucking rape trap again and succeeds this time so that's cool.
1: Just try the same thing over and over apparently it'll work if if there's a man writing the script or something.
0: Yep. (laughs) Meanwhile Adzo makes his sex confession to William who's like real chill about it.
1: Yeah I mean that was actually pretty cool.
0: There is this whole emphasis in the next Episode about this like whole captivity and attempted rape sequence, right? With Salvatore and a girl. So annoying. She doesn't have a name. Good God. Girl. It's a lot of the focus of this particular episode. I really just could have lived without it. It's not necessary. It's just so gratuitous to have this woman placed in this position of being threatened with rape. Yes. Essentially just to fill time.
1: Just to fill an episode. The
0: gratuity of the rape is bad enough, but then made even worse by the fact that they're kind of making this decision to present this disabled character as a... Being a rapist, I think is like really problematic as well. That's right.
1: And in in the book, it's a much sadder story because in the book, the girl is from the village below the monastery, which it's implied to exist in this movie because we see the poor peasants showing up with their stuff to get their coins a few times, right? but we don't know where they are but in the book the girl comes from that village and the implication at least is that she has agreed to have sex with Salvatore for some kind of grisly, like an oxen, ox heart or something like that essentially yeah. right because she's starving because her family's starving because of these wars that are happening in northern Italy at the mm-hmm. early 14th century in that sense yeah. like you, you you, can understand the mechanism where this, this woman is coerced and you know just to survive mm-hmm. whereas in the movie you're right it's just this gratuitous violence
0: we- need to emphasize women are there to be victimized essentially right she has no character her only function essentially is uh, to be a sexual object and she's just kind of sometimes consenting and sometimes not essentially as well yeah like that's all she does yeah is have people desire her
1: she's also quite a skilled bird whistler
0: <laughs> I mean, <Right>. you know. <laughs> it's the only thing we know about her it's like she can make bird noises
1: I mean she, she could put it on her resume but you know it, it won't have any name <laughs>
0: It's like, we really wanted to hire her to make bird noises, but it was so hard. He is trying to and make a love spell for her so that she'll right. be into him. He has to like murder a cat for this. Doesn't actually rape her because he's like trying, he's like, no, you're going to fit on the eggs and the cat guts or whatever. And like, then you'll love me and then we'll have sex is the plan there in theory. Yeah. Also R.A.P. cat.
1: I mean, at least we didn't have to see that scene. <laughs> Just the eyes, right?
0: We saw the eyes and we saw before that he like had this cat in the sack. So I'm not sure we actually yeah. saw the cat, but we heard like the like yowling and saw the writhing of the cat in the sack.
1: Yeah. I could imagine (laughs) A grimmer version of that scene where it's like, here, kitty. Exactly. You know. Exactly. um, (laughs) At
0: least we didn't need to, like, watch him kill the cat. Meanwhile, there is also other things going on Gui is like kind of warning Malachi that like his alliance only goes so far and that he's heard like a lot of rumors about like Baron (laughs) and Malachi's like thing going on but he nevertheless is kind of going forward with the debate Anna shows up to look for Remigio and like trying to murder Gui because why not I guess
1: yeah I mean you know the
0: debate parts I think are good and like William's very good at debating and he has this like kind of self-effacing like I'm just going to make a couple of like minor points like right? this isn't really you know doctrine like I'm just you know just reflecting this is just off the cuff and then like makes very well thought out convincing clear arguments
1: yeah I thought it was pretty good and it was actually relatively true to the, to the spirit of the book which is fairly i think accurate in terms of how it portrays the ideas that were floating around the imperial circle.
0: Yeah. And very much does kind of delve into, you know, these central issues about the ways in which the Franciscan emphasis on poverty is something that the church ultimately fears in a lot of serious ways as being right. ultimately undermining their power because the church is not poor it was not in the middle ages and remains not so now.
1: Yeah, and the implications of of the idea of poverty just just they they were they really were problematic for the church I mean how to deal yeah you know I mean this is, the idea of yeah. spiritual poverty it doesn't have a whole lot of valence for the actual poor
0: and you know and when you are saying like in my heart I am poor and then you like are having like some really fancy food on jeweled plates it doesn't seem so much to the people that are actually starving that yeah. you're that poor in your heart
1: I lost it in my
0: heart <laughs> <laughs> right Severinus is murdered I was sad. Aww, I know. Remigio is there and gets arrested and accused of both murder and heresy. William and Adzo <laughs> then kick out everyone except for Benno and start to investigate. And Malachi right. is very grumpy about this. And the monks are all just like standing right outside, like banging on the door. Like they're very annoyed about having <laughs> been kicked out. Right. <laughs> Adzo in the middle of this takes off and realizes somehow that like Salvatore must have kidnapped girl.
1: Isn't it because there's something about like the cat? Or
0: Something having to do with the cat, and it's. I think it comes up because he also realizes that they're looking for Salvatore in connection with Remigio getting right. arrested. That's yeah. right. Yes.
1: That's right.
0: Yeah. He runs off to try and save her, but then instead, like, gets shoved down a river. Yeah. <laughs> because that uh, that history as an imperial soldier is not serving him too well, apparently. <laughs> <laughs>
1: It's a great way to escape being captured by shul- by uh, soldiers, you know.
0: Right, exactly. It's like he doesn't get to save her, but ultimately, like he's much better off for himself, having gotten very securely out of that little hut, right. because then he is not also arrested when the papal soldiers come and arrest Salvatore and the girl. Exactly, and arrest her for witchcraft. Because of course they do.
1: <laughs> well, what else should you do in the 14th century?
0: <laughs> I'll reflect on this later. Again. I feel so bad for the abbot at the top of the next episode. Like, he's just like freaking the fuck out. I, like, I was not trained for this.
1: Right. He's like, I just wanted to fondle my gems and worship my little statue. <laughs> <laughs> it's
0: like, why? I was like, this is not, this is not what I thought I was getting into. Right. <laughs> I feel so bad for him. Salvatore, meanwhile, since he just tried to rape somebody, I don't want to feel too bad for him, but also they put hot coals on his balls, so, like, <laughs> gotta feel a little bad for him.
1: That's some pretty instantaneous karma, I mean. Yup.
0: Know? Yep. There's also this one monk who's just, like, totally complaining, like, those are my irons, and they took them and they're using them, and that's not what they're for.
1: It's gonna have Salvatore's. Ball, ball skin on him from now on
0: and like Remigio's feet I think
1: yeah oh yeah that too yeah like, do you realize how bad that guy's feet smell he's a franciscan. <laughs> yeah
0: yeah <laughs> 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 there's a lot of gratuitous torture scenes and yeah The stuff with salvatore is particularly unpleasant because like it really has this creepy you know kind of torture or stockholm syndrome bond oh, yeah. thing that happens very quickly of like bernard Guy setting himself up as like he's both the torturer but also the person who is then his savior and that he can stop the torture
1: i think that's fairly accurate though
0: <laughs> it's fairly accurate especially when you take into account the fact that like clearly salvatore is being presented as being to some extent to like he would, in some sense, like be potentially even easier to manipulate in this way, right? We is also there's this like whole thing that then doesn't actually go anywhere where he's like very stoked to hear that oh. <laughs> Willie or that Adzo is sleeping with the girl who's been accused of witchcraft and that therefore he could like use this to get to William, right? And this is like a plot point that you think will go somewhere and it does not, yeah, which I'm fine with, but like why include it at all if it's not going to go anywhere. The trial is also deeply unpleasant in this way where we really see, you know, Salvatore and how he's been manipulated into betraying Remigio, who we've seen him as being like very deeply devoted to for so long. And it's also just kind of an icky scene. The trial of Remigio is then kind of getting into partially the murder, but really they're mostly concerned about the heresy. Right. Malachi gives up the letter, these letters that Remigio had entrusted to him ages ago, which are actually letters from Dolcino and which also reveal that Dolcino has a daughter. Yeah. Anna, she's relevant again. Dun, dun, and she's female just like wandering around the <laughs> Abbey, like just chilling, basically. Right. <laughs> In one of the like very half-hearted attempts to get William involved or kind of implicated, they kind of bring up this like you were talking to Severinus about like some book. What's the book? And then he uh, says that it was a treatise on canine hydrophobia. Yeah, which I really like <laughs> to think is a Dominican joke.
1: Seems like a, a good one <laughs>
0: for listeners not familiar with the Latin. Bernard Gui is a Dominican friar and uh, Dominicanes in. Uh, Laden is what they would have been called their order, but it would also, you know, if you separate it out in the middle, would be Dominicanes, the Hounds of the Lord? Right. Which is like a not 100% flattering always nickname that they get. Yeah. I like to think that that it being a treatise specifically on canine hydrophobia is like a nasty comment about the Dominicans somehow, but... uh...
1: (laughs) (laughs) Foaming at the mouth. (laughs)
0: Exactly. Yeah. (laughs) Remigio also, I kind of love him in this scene. And that he goes from denial about being a heresy to then he like weirdly like starts in on the like weird, evasive, heretical comments that are like the kinds of things where he's like, you, what whatever you say is true, if it is in fact the truth. Yes. Bernard Gui. this is like his thing. And he's like, you know, so obviously he's like, yeah, no, this is like a thing that heretics do.
1: But what's interesting to me there, because this, this, this uh, language, some of this language was lifted directly from Bernard Gui's manual. That he that he wrote right. in history. Lord, I will believe what you tell me to be true. Right? If yeah. you tell me if you tell me what is true, rather. Right? And so. Yeah. The right. the, the, the sympathetic reading of that is you know, why don't you tell me what you want me to say?
0: Right, that it's people who are being tortured and they're like, please just say what, tell me what I need to say to make it stop.
1: I don't really know what the real nature of Christ is. You tell me, right? It's
0: like, I don't care. Yeah. (laughs) I don't care about much about the nature of Christ. I just want to not starve.
1: And yeah, but the scary part of that, of course, is the way Guy reads it, both historically, the real Guy, but also in the the show, is that that actually means if you tell me what I want you to tell me, that I will... Then I will believe you. Yeah,
0: yeah. Although it's an interesting scene because uh, Remigio does actually seem like he's doing it almost deliberately right. at this point because I think he Blank sort of script. realizes that he's fucked and so now he just wants to like fuck with Gui, right? Which like props and because then he just like goes into so he like informs on the abbot as having been like involved in uh, you know the whole like some whole thing and like knowing that he was a heretic and the abbot just like takes off
1: right. and it just
0: goes straight into like trying to summon Lucifer and calling upon the names of demons.
1: Right, and and I think it's like, well, I think he was willing to to accede to being a Dolcinian and having been with Fraudicino, but then yeah. when Bernard Guy was like, well, you, how did you kill everyone in the Abbey? Which Remigio actually hadn't Killed anybody. <laughs> I mean, right,
0: right. Yeah.
1: But so then G was going to torture him again. Yeah. So then he's like, "Well, fuck it. I killed this guy because he was pretty. That guy looked at me funny. Like, remember this guy was fat while I was poor, or something. Like, he, had, right, you know, he made yeah. up all this crap just to be like, get, get me out of this." out of the picture quick
0: right yeah and of course yeah it's obviously like avoiding torture but also it's just like I don't know it's very theatrical like I'm yeah. like like he just really goes for it and I'm like you know what good for you Remigio go out with a bang
1: he definitely <laughs> was very good
0: we then learned that Benno in fact had found the book that they were looking for in Severinus's Herbaria it was a book <laughs> that was of a number of treatises bound together and there was this whole thing where like Adzo is this is a weird looking book and then William's like you fucking idiot like that's Arabic <laughs> we're looking for a Greek book right and then like you know at some point there like books can be bound together damn it duh
1: it's the middle ages oh yeah
0: (laughs) I forgot they did that like all the time we learned that Benno found it and then gave it to Malachi in exchange for a position as his assistant and Malachi falls over dead calling out it has the power of a thousand scorpions
1: right just like the apocalypse son (laughs) just
0: like the apocalypse (laughs) Anna, meanwhile, is, like, just chilling in the dungeon.
1: She's just lurking, right?
0: Yeah. There's this additional plot line, which, like, doesn't really matter, where Mimiju is like, I betrayed your father to save your mother because I was in love with her. Okay, that's fine. Sure. Okay.
1: And then there's pointless rescue attempt. Right. It's like, we end exactly where we started after, like, a 10-minute sequence.
0: Again, it's like this action that we're interpolating in, but it's ultimately completely pointless and... I mean, the irritating thing with the character of Anna is that she ultimately has no bearing on the story whatsoever, which makes sense because she's not in the original story and nothing (laughs) that much changes. (laughs) So we've, I guess, just decided that, like, that was it for the debate and we're not going to bother finishing it because Gui is all like, yeah, all I have to do is burn the witch and then I can just take off.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's like, you know, my job is done here.
0: In the dungeons, we get a lot of contrast between, like, Salvatore cheerily eating some bugs and then Remigio chat, like... Kind of trying to kill himself, but then giving up in the middle. Yeah. we also is like very insistent that like he's like I've won, I've destroyed the Franciscans, and it's like, did you do anything
1: though? I know. I didn't think <laughs> it was really quite as as conclusive as as he suggested. I
0: no, I mean the debate felt very inconclusive and unfinished. Yes. And then, I, I, I mean this episode feels very rushed in some ways.
1: I mean, essentially, the head of the Franciscans says, "Well, I'll go to Avignon and meet with the Pope because I want him to know that I want there to be a unified church," and I'm sure. Sure, we can come to some sort of understanding, right? Yeah. Which is what historically happened. This guy Mike Lips is saying I went to, to Avignon. Right. And shortly thereafter I had to get the hell out
0: of there, but you know. <laughs> right. And then he's like, oh no, I'm not gonna stay in Avignon. He, he, he tried <laughs> Adzo and William are trying to save girl from uh, the dungeon. Yeah. William tries to blackmail guy by like reminding him, and this is what we talked about before, that he actually like appropriated the power of the secular oh. arm and instead and himself set fire to to the pyre that uh, right. you know, at which uh, Dolcino and Margarita were executed.
1: That's definitely a sin, bud. It's
0: definitely <laughs> a sin. But again, this goes nowhere. It's so, so weird. Is blackmail. <laughs> It's like, <laughs> like, William, you're not good at blackmailing.
1: No, he was pretty bad at it, it turns out. Like,
0: he has this whole speech, and at first I'm like, that's cool. Like, he's gonna, like, blackmail him successfully, and then, like, that's how she's gonna escape. Like, that's nice. I like that. And then, like, Gui just goes in and chats with her in Occitan, creepily smells her hair, and then decides, yeah, she's a witch.
1: Yeah, it's like, she smells just like, it's just like the last woman I burned for no reason. Exactly. She smells like witchcraft and fear.
0: William and Adzo then go to see the abbot, who is just absolutely lost it at this point, point. <laughs> and like starts by just like musing about gem lore for like ten goddamn minutes. I know. Then tries to like force Adzo until it like kiss his ring and take a vow of silence, and then like fires William, and then is like, and then is like, it's Vespers, off you go.
1: I really think that that gem lore is underrated, you know, and we could have used a, a little Lord of the Rings fanfare music in that scene, or yeah, something. I don't know.
0: The abbot's under- the hinge just was dis- disquisition about gem lore was actually kind of fun and like I wish we'd like gotten like more about the Marian devotion element right. and uh, like how that fit in for him.
1: He's like, I read this book by Albert the Great once, dude, and now that I'm totally like freaked out.
0: <laughs> right.
1: <laughs> Let me tell you this thing. I remember the kiss by yeah. ring.
0: But they can't really expand that disquisition because they put all of the action that was in the original book and then some into this episode, and it's already right. like feels very crowded. Yeah. William's still like real grumpy about the fact that he hasn't entered like figured out yet how to enter the inner sanctum of the library and then like thanks to this like Chancellor Mark finally has an epiphany and like figures it out right and then he also like feels dumb because he's like how did I not like figure out this letter <laughs> they go to the library they finally enter the uh, the Venus Africa, the kind of inner sanctum and they find Jorge He's the murderer. Surprise. Yeah. <laughs> this reveal, I feel like, is, like, not done well.
1: There was no sense of excitement or suspense. It's just sort of like, yep, here I am.
0: Yeah, it's like, oh, yeah, that makes sense, I guess. You got the book. Like,
1: let's run through this. We've got five minutes of run time, chief.
0: Exactly. Like, it just feels very much the so, like, fuck, we haven't even said who the murderer is. Yeah. And we have to, like, deal with girl. True. The abbot, meanwhile, has entered through one of these secret entrances and has now been, like, trapped in a teeny tiny enclosed space where he then is, like, suffocated to death. So Jorge's keeping going with those murders. He is now murdered the yeah, Abbot.
1: Jorge is rolling deep.
0: He's murdered like eight people or whatever. Yeah. I also the the poor Abbot. He's in there and he's like, you have to let me out. I order you. I'm the Abbot. And it's like, buddy, it's not going to work, my friend.
1: I know. It's like, dude, that is such a sad effort.
0: I feel bad for him. He just got it over his head.
1: Yeah, definitely. So
0: then there's this awkward thing where they're like, no, the apocalypse stuff was like just a red herring and like Malachi just like murdered people because he was gay. <laughs> Basically. <laughs> Which like I don't think is quite how they settled on it in the book.
1: No, they, that, that was not how they did it in the book at all. <laughs> Essentially, especially in the book, what what it turns out to be is that, uh, you know, that this whole debate over the over whether Christ laughed was like really, really, really central to right. people working in the library. And Jorge had brought back the lost book of Aristotle's second book of poetics, which was in history, it's never been discovered if it existed, right? right. Or whatever. But, um, yeah. and the, the, the conceit of the story is that Jorge found the only copy known in Christendom and it's hidden in the bowels of this library. And Jorge yeah. is terrified that if anyone discovers it, then it will undermine the seriousness of Christ's message because, you know, as John Chrysostom said, Christ never laughed, right?
0: Right so this is going back to again that's why the debate about whether Christ laughed yeah, is central exactly in fact, to the story yeah and the fact that like this is Jorge's opinion about this is that no Christ never laughed and this matters is why he's like murdered seven people
1: right. if I'm not mistaken, the only person that, that Malachi kills in the book is Severinus, right the the yeah. um the herbalist
0: yeah in order to try and get the book back exactly. So all the people that were poisoned we find out, are poisoned by the book itself essentially that the uh, the poison has been rubbed onto the pages of the book and because, it's, like, because the pages are very thin and kind of stick to each other you kind of have to like turn the pages by licking your finger and then touching a page and then licking your finger and turning the right. next page and so on and so because of this you then if you're reading the book you ingest the poison. Right. So essentially it's a kind of foolproof way basically to kill anyone who actually reads this dangerous book.
1: Exactly except for that William has gloves on <laughs> (laughs) (laughs)
0: Right, except for William who has gloves on. And I do also find it entertaining that then this kind of goes back to that Benno, poor Benno, he like wants to like, you know, be distant and like have all this stuff in the library, but he also has so little intellectual curiosity that he doesn't even like try to read the book. Right. I guess, right. I guess maybe it's just because he doesn't know Greek. I don't know.
1: Yeah, maybe so. <laughs>
0: <laughs> He's like, ah, yeah, fuck it. I don't know. I don't, I don't read Greek. I'm just not going to worry about this. I'll find some other books.
1: Right. So what's to me fascinating in the book in this scene is that we learn that essentially all of William's theories were complete nonsense, essentially. The, the, right. the theories about the apocalypse and all of like all of his theories turn out to have been constellations of signs and symbols that William had created rationally, but that didn't reflect reality. And mm-hmm. essentially, William realizes that he entered the cent like the Finis Africa, the central you know sanctum of the library, because he really wanted to get in there, and <laughs> it didn't right. necessarily have anything to do with the crime he created like the circumstances to get in there and he happened to solve the crime completely by accident.
0: Right. (laughs) And then I think the way in which he's trying to solve the crime then also kind of puts Jorge into the position where he then does end up ultimately meeting William and Adzo in the library in this particular fashion.
1: And it's funny because in the book, I think Jorge is like, well, I've been waiting for you for quite some time.
0: Right. (laughs) Like, I thought you were going to figure this out way sooner, buddy.
1: Like, dude, what's wrong with you?
0: (laughs) Yeah. Jorge then consumes the pages of the book, both uh, destroying the book and himself, but also there is a, uh, a Adzo's lantern falls and starts a fire, which right. is never good in the library. No. Meanwhile, Bernard Guy is in the middle of like burning the Occitan girl. Right. Anna manages to rescue her and then just immediately gets killed. <laughs> so we do not pass the Ift decker test, everyone. Right. <laughs> there was one named woman and she does not, or there were two, I guess also her mother and they did not make it.
1: Right. Yes.
0: Remigio basically like lets himself burn to death after like trying to save some books. <laughs> poor Nardo, our poor like monk who's like, m- is, like musing about the apocalypse. This poor man just gets like gratuitously fucking like trampled by a horse while yelling about the apocalypse more.
1: Right? I mean, he was crazy, but he was kind of a cute little old man. He's like, give me some chickpeas. <laughs> I know. It's
0: like, he seemed, you know, he seemed nice. And I think he's on the right side, ultimately. And it's that the other kind of complicated part of it that they kind of half-heartedly explain in the show and do a better job of explaining in the book is that it's essentially, there are two different factions, basically, it's the, I guess, mostly kind of, I don't know, German slash Spanish faction that wants to keep the library closed off and have very kind of serious restrictions about who can enter the library and who can read what, and the Italians want there to be more of a kind of opening up of the library. And for everyone to be able to access it freely.
1: Right, but they also, but the Italians also just don't want a non-Italian to be in charge.
0: That too, yeah. Like,
1: like there's also just like the clear implication that like no foreigner will do.
0: Right. Yeah. That's that's very much true. Yeah. Which you know.
1: Which, you know
0: hey based on like the example of Malachi like I don't blame them for being like no we're just de- we're just done with these Germans
1: if you're a 14th century Italian most of the Germans you meet are probably they probably show up with you know pointy sticks and swords and things and I, I right know, I, yeah I can see how they that they might not make a great impression
0: right you're not getting a good like idea of, of, of Germans <laughs> The library's mostly burned. They rescue like 12 books. Right. Like half the monks are dead, I guess. Bernard Guy's is just like, fuck it, I'm leaving. Occitan girl, I don't know, runs off into the woods or whatever. I guess she's fine right and adzo like goes off uh you know kind of starts off with william but then eventually i guess makes his way back to his abbey and germany of milk and muses that she was the love of my life and i never knew her name and this is from the book but i'm still like adzo just like go fuck yourself come on (laughs) she's not the goddamn love of your life
1: yeah i mean i thought i don't remember that from the book maybe it wasn't there though it wasn't as strongly at least it wasn't as annoying (laughs)
0: <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Maybe, maybe there's just something about how her whole character was dealt with that makes it even more annoying.
1: Because in the book, she's burned.
0: <laughs> maybe it was that it was in the movie, not the book.
1: They do that in the in the in the movie for sure. But in yeah. the book, remember he has the whole long disquisition about like searching for the fragments for years. And then yeah. he ends. Then he ends with the the the, the Latin poem about the rose. I, I, right. I, it's like it's almost like you know. Once he gets over the girl, he's like, well,
0: <laughs> books are better than women, <laughs> right?
1: I mean, that's kind of the implication throughout the book,
0: right? Or at least, well, books are better than romantic relationships. Well, now I'm
1: old, I realize what a fool I was to be tempted by the flesh.
0: <laughs> yes william has like an interesting line about there being like different types of lust and lust for knowledge and books being one of the types of lust and right. bernard gui is like lust for his own perverted sense of justice or something like yeah that. right i was just so annoyed by that line by this point it was but i'm like yeah, you could have asked her her name so many times you spent so much time with her the the least creative mother <laughs>
1: guy in the
0: world <laughs> the least like interest in his like romantic and sexual partner. Right?
1: You, you can't even bother to figure out how to communicate enough to figure out what she calls herself
0: like it is not that hard you point at yourself and then you say adzo and then you yeah. point at her and you say like and, and you're like mm?
1: me tarzan you know uh,
0: right exactly that's like the basic thing that's the yeah. most i feel like that's the easiest way like thing to be able to communicate to a speaker of a foreign language
1: i mean i guess that's what they say about you know, not being very street smart you know <laughs>
0: Right. We can now move on to our next section, the Vera et Falso, where we talk about what they get right and what they get wrong. Excellent. The very short version of what will be the thesis of this section is that there is a decent amount that is right here and all of it comes from Umberto Eco and everything that they added is terrible and I hate it.
1: Yeah, yeah. All <laughs> of the extra material, you just, you end up wondering why.
0: So some visuals, they show an astrolabe, and, yeah. uh, you know, the kind of scientific instrument used to make astronomical measurements, which looks about correct and is described more or less accurately. Right. They refer to the medical school at Padua, which is real. <laughs> Yeah, That's something. The abbot hanging the jewels on the Virgin Mary actually seems seems like a kind of plausible thing.
1: I definitely thought so, yeah. This
0: kind of dressing up of statues in uh, these kind of ritualistic ways. We definitely know that they like dressed up statues. Yes. There was like a big thing in uh, the guinages that they would have these Christ child dolls, essentially, that they would dress up.
1: Yeah. In Santa Fe, this is an early modern example, but their statue Mm -hmm. of La Conquistadora, they still yeah. dress her up to this day and they have outfits yeah. and they, you know, so they think that there is a plausible <laughs> tradition there.
0: Mostly I think they did okay with talking about the Dolcinian heresy. They kind of sense that it was sort of Inspired by, or at least a little too close to the uh, Franciscans' kind of idea of radical poverty and the poverty of the church, that it is this kind of movement that basically, at least according to reports, uh, kind of devolved into murder and plunder. Ultimately, uh, with Dolcino and his band, that he really did also have a woman who was his lover, but also kind of his co-preacher. It seems who is quite negatively depicted in these sources that we have about her, which are of course you know written by (laughs) inquisitors.
1: Well, Bernard Gui is, is one of the <laughs> By primers, Ghi, yes. So.
0: <laughs> yeah. Surprise, <laughs> listeners. <laughs> yeah. Interestingly, so we have a lot of documentation about a number of his followers being burned at the stake. Right. But we actually don't have explicitly anything contemporary that overtly refers to Dalcino having successfully been executed. Right. The other thing is, what the fuck is this scene where they're crucifying heretics? <laughs>
1: yeah fair question
0: why would a christian crucify heretics as a punishment a punishment that reminds everyone of jesus
1: well, this these are the thieves not you know um, no <laughs> no yeah really that was that was a huge miss for me as well i was like come on guys
0: yeah and i've seen that sort of thing a couple of times and it yeah. always drives me nuts they don't use crucifixion as a punishment for heresy
1: right like yeah, for very true.
0: good reasons
1: Right, yeah, it's like, think of the symbols here, guys. Come on. The
0: kind of kernel of this issues between the Franciscans and the church at this point and the kind of suspicion of the Franciscans as being heretical and at the same time, the concern that essentially what they want to define as heresy increasingly is being critical of the church and of the lack of poverty of the church. Right. And that being inherently a problem.
1: Yeah, I, th- I thought they handled that fairly well. I mean, it's, it's yeah. you know, it's a topic that is fairly complex and has a long history even by that point, yeah. You know? So, I mean, obviously, they had to kind of just get it in there in a way that was digestible for any lay audience member. And I and I thought yeah. they did that pretty successfully.
0: I wish they'd done just a little bit more. I wish that that part of the story had been just a little bit richer.
1: That's my favorite part of the story, too. I mean, honestly. like Yeah. Yeah, the murder mystery is like a almost, I know that's the main part of the book, but it's like, yeah, that's here and there. And the thing that I love about the
0: book is that I think the book (laughs) is actually kind of about both.
1: Right, exactly.
0: They're interested in the murder mystery, and then they add all these other action plots, and I don't think, ultimately, the makers of this show were that interested in this Franciscan story, uh, which, you know, I think is fascinating, and we'd love to have more of here, but What they do have, I think, is... Overall, done well. They just could have had a bit more. Agreed. Okay. One little thing uh, I really enjoyed that they like kind of stuck in there. I think in general, like the kind of language that people use when talking about uh, you know various kind of religious debates uh, is overall well done. Yeah. And just one kind of particular example is that I'm always really enjoy the use of the uh, the metaphor from the Song of Songs about the foxes and the vines.
1: Yes, indeed.
0: As kind of metaphor for heresy and the kind of heretical foxes destroying the vines of the true church.
1: Me too. I, um, yeah. <laughs> I have a lecture on heresy that's, that's quoted title is the little foxes on the vines or whatever, you know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I think that's a, it's a, an evocative image and the, they did do a good job with that.
0: Yeah, definitely. Yeah. I In my women in the Bible class, when we talked about the Song of Songs, it was definitely like very fun to be like, so this is a poem that you read and this is clearly a poem about sex. And then it's like, and now you get to read like what Bernard of right. Clairvaux has to say about <laughs> this poem. And it's like, did you know it is about heresy? <laughs> right. <laughs> but it is a very evocative matter for that sense, yeah. Definitely. Then there are some things that are, I guess I would say, they get a little bit right but don't quite hit. I don't want to defend Bernard Gui. like I think he's terrible but I hate these efforts to kind of make someone I don't know sadistic in this very like there, there's, there's this very like insistence that like if you're kind of killing somebody in this way that like let's make them like sadistic and like sexually frustrated and right. like consumed by these weirdly personal hatreds as opposed to as I think I was saying before that I think what makes him so terrifying is that I think he comes off in his Inquisitor's manual as so clinical about everything.
1: Yes and I, I, I think that this Idea that we have that people who do things that we consider to be wrong have to then have like these obvious personality defects.
0: <laughs> right. It's
1: a flawed model, and we see over and over yeah. again that that's just simply not the case, right? I mean, yeah. I think one of the actually most compelling things about a person like Bernard Guy is how reasonable his thought world, his, his kind of intellectual world was within his presumptions. You know, it was yeah. like an, an internally coherent system of thought. And that's what made that kind of thinking so dangerous. It's like the a priori yeah. assumptions create this necessity to exterminate difference, essentially, which is yeah. the problem.
0: <laughs> right. With the, yeah. purity,
1: with the purity test, essentially, right? You know.
0: Right. And in addition, I mean, I think there is this insistence that violence has to be irrational. Right. I think what's terrifying about violence, both in terms, you know, inquisitorial violence in the Middle Ages, uh, you know, the Nazi concentration camps, for example. I mean, I think there is much to be said for thinking about the ways in which violence is rational and systematic and organized.
1: That's right. We
0: acknowledge the ways in which that is true, both in the past and today. We actually will have a better sense of how systemic violence works to oppress people. Yeah. And so it would be nice to acknowledge that and not pretend that violence is random and irrational always.
1: Yeah. And that's one of the interesting things about the book is that you have this contrast between Bernard Guy, who's like this very dangerous figure, Mm -hmm. and he brings violence with him by implication in the story, at least, and the Dolcinians, right, who are definitely violent. And, you know, they're on opposite sides. And in fact, the Dolcinians are, in some sense, taking the idea of poverty to its Logical extreme,
0: killing of rich people and taking their right. stuff. Right, you
1: know, it's like, well, these people, you know, these people are not going to get up off of it,
0: <laughs> right?
1: <laughs> you know, and the gospel, you know, like the gospels Eat tell the us, get, you know, so they have this, they have like, I mean, it, it, it's twisted. Yeah. If you're not, if you're not operating within that logical system, right? And I yeah. think that's Bernard guy's way of thinking seems twisted from the outside, but from within, it actually yeah. has its its own kind of logic. It just turns out that, thank thankfully, we now understand how. <laughs> how limiting and dangerous logic can be.
0: Yes. So that's something that I I wish they'd done that rather differently. The other thing uh, that is, again, something that, you know, it's not inaccurate per se, but that I wish they would just stop, is uh, that this is very much an example, which, as I said, which the book isn't, of... uh, insisting on this kind of trope of the Middle Ages as everything's very violent. Right. And all of the violence that we see in this is very gratuitous. The battle scene doesn't actually really matter to anything else that we see. The torture, honestly, in the win Wind* doesn't even really matter. We don't need to see that. For the most part, the rape is gratuitous. It do, and you know is ultimately not even relevant to the plot in a kind of meaningful way. It's like a way to fill an episode, and right. it's very much kind of I see it as being this need to present the pre-modern as violent in order to pretend that the modern is less violent.
1: The, yeah, well, the Pinker approach. <laughs>
0: exactly, exactly, and that's how Pinker, to some extent, proves his argument is by exaggerating the violence of the past and de-emphasizing the violence of the present.
1: Ignoring whole categories
0: of modern violence. Well, I mean that, yeah. Ignoring whole categories (laughs) of violence in the present. And in the past, like, relying on basically, like, a, like, coffee table book about the Inquisition as his main source. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) It's a terrible book. Nobody read it. right. (laughs) I think that that is a, unfortunately, like, very pervasive belief that, like, makes modern people feel better about themselves. Yes. And that medieval media is used to prove that point to, like for modern people to prove that point to ourselves and i wish we would stop and i like that the book doesn't and in the movie for that part like they don't do that i mean there are murders but the murders all like have a purpose right <laughs> It's not gratuitous violence when you, like, find corpses, uh, some of which is, you know, unpleasant, but it doesn't feel the same way.
1: That's right, yeah.
0: Then there's a couple of things that they obviously got wrong, like, really wrong. Some of them are nitpicky because I like to, like, complain about art history. The Definitely. paintings look so 15th century to me.
1: Yes, I agree.
0: I think some of them might legit be, like, Fra Angelico copies. Oh, right. um, <laughs> that
1: the could be, 15th century
0: yeah. artist. Yeah, like a lot of the art is like too late. And I was looking at that. Another like fun fact that I learned recently, actually, because uh, Ray Clemens, curator at the Beinecke at Yale, was actually here at Indiana to give a talk the other week and just happened to mention offhand the fact that illuminators only are working with one color at any given time, because otherwise you're like mixing up all of these dyes and they dry up too fast.
1: Ah, okay.
0: Which totally makes sense. I just never thought about it before. Right. But that you would basically, you would go through and do the whole book in one color and then you would go through and do a different and like do the next color and so on.
1: Wow. Okay. So
0: since I've learned that fun fact recently, I'm now on the lookout for it and can say that uh, this was not done correctly, that you clearly see the illuminators working with uh, a palette that has multiple color dyes on it.
1: Right. Okay.
0: (laughs) Yeah. I also want to talk about Bernard Guy's weird little crosses.
1: Okay, yes, yes. It's like self-hurting, kind of weird.
0: There were practices of self-mortification.
1: Scourging seems like it would have been more period appropriate, right?
0: Yeah, exactly. So like people would scourge themselves.
1: Hair shirts even.
0: Cutting teeny little crosses into your skin. I I don't know where they got that from. And it's just a bizarre choice. And I wish they'd just like gone for some like nice standard scourging. If they're going to emphasize Bernard Gui is practicing self-mortification. Another thing that I have talked about so many times <laughs> is please stop placing the early modern witch craze in the Middle Ages. Just <laughs> right. everyone, please stop.
1: That would be uh, just a bridge too far for for the modern imagination. So come on.
0: <sighs> yeah. And, you know, I've said this many times, the real like interest in witchcraft and anxiety about witchcraft begins in the 15th century and really kind of reaches its peak in the 16th and 17th. It's really an early modern phenomenon. It's not a medieval phenomenon and to the extent that it is, it's later medieval than this. Also, witches don't get burned, witches get hanged. Right. So you know who does get burned are heretics.
1: Heretic, yeah. And in the
0: book, I believe she's accused of heresy. Yes. So it makes sense.
1: Yeah. <laughs> I sometimes wonder what the non-historian or non like enthusiast of history, like whether they How they conceive of like the early modern period, because it seems like, like, you know, just from a lay perspective, they probably are like, you know, well, everything before 1776 is roughly the Middle Ages, right? I mean, like, I don't know. I just wonder sometimes how people periodize. Right. Like, I guess the Renaissance slides in there somewhere, you know. Shakespeare. Yeah, I mean,
0: sometimes I do think that it is that like the Renaissance is like marketing campaign of like we're yes. like better than the dumb last thousand years. Well,
1: it's like a bunch of Italian misogynists, you know? Right? Basically, exactly. in the beginning. Yeah. I mean, in the beginning. I mean, that's my take on it anyway. Like, well, yeah. look how perfect the male form is. Women suck. You know? I mean, that's like the new uh-huh. narrative of the Renaissance. <laughs> joining old narratives about how women suck, of course, you know, but <laughs> right,
0: right. And then, you know, that also, like, in terms of literature, that they're like this, like, oh, we're going to like, go back to like, the Greco, like Greco Roman antiquity. Yeah. And like, we're going to pretend that we have discovered all these books that people have been reading for like 200 years. And that's only in the West. It's been like, a thousand years in the east and
1: <laughs> yeah gee
0: you know and then you have things like Stephen greenblatt's uh, book on uh lucre on the like discovery of De natura right he makes the claim that like this discovery like ended religious intolerance in the, during the renaissance and it's like have you seen the renaissance it's arguably a period in which things certainly got worse for jews there's you know the witch craze and then there's the fact that most of the early modern period was marked by explicitly religious wars between yeah. catholics and protestants the
1: idea that medieval people were completely unaware of the De Natura is complete nonsense, yeah. uh, also. Yeah. I mean, but you know, <laughs> yeah, <Not too.
0: laughs>
1: whatever. I, I suppose yeah. I suppose if you make a, a bold enough claim and you're a famous scholar, apparently you could, uh, you know, what, what, what award did we win for that book?
0: Oh, Several, I don't. I don't know,
1: many awards. It was amazing. I was so I was, angry, I was so, so impressed that people continue to just, you know, <sighs> treat the Middle Ages as an interregnum.
0: Yep, I didn't read the actual book, but I read the like mini version of the book that he did as a New Yorker article. And if I had not been reading it on a Kindle, I would have thrown it across the room. Um,
1: (laughs) Fair enough, yeah. Yeah.
0: and then, of course, all the way back to the beginning, there is the lovely line, Ludwig of Bavaria declared the separation between politics and religion. Oh, so yeah. in addition <laughs> to the fact that no one did that in the Middle Ages, no one, specifically Ludwig of Bavaria didn't. So that should lead into our next segment, Historia at Veritas, where we focus on a real historical figure or event or phenomenon. And you, as one of the world's leading experts on Ludwig of Bavaria, <laughs> can talk about him and how he didn't do that.
1: Well, fantastic. Understanding (laughs) that my enthusiasm for this subject is not matched by probably more than two other people on the planet. (laughs) I will give you the short version of the short version. (laughs) And so what I'll say then is that the conflict between Ludwig of Bavaria, who is at this point in time the King of the Romans is, is his title. Mm-hmm. And that essentially is the intermediary step on the way to being a, a chosen or crowned Holy Roman Emperor, right? So he's been elected as King of the Romans by the elector princes of the Holy Roman Empire. And essentially, what happens is that John the 22nd is elected as Pope two years later. Well, they don't get along. What happens mm-hmm. is that John the 22nd. Becomes pope in Avignon because, of course, Italy is very turbulent in in the 13th mm-hmm. century, and it becomes impossible for the papacy to to stay secure in Rome. All throughout the mm-hmm. 13th century, they're going to Viterbo or or you know or traveling itinerantly around Italy or whatever. Finally, mm-hmm. they go to Avignon.
0: Thanks to some active intervention on the part of the King of France.
1: Yeah, this is you know and essentially John the 22nd though he becomes pope and decides, well, I want to reclaim Italy for the papacy. And so he Mm -hmm. starts a series of wars. He actually revolutionizes papal finance to finance a series of devastating mercenary wars in northern Italy, trying to reconquer this place for the papacy. The people of northern Italy aren't very happy and they see themselves, or at least it's convenient for themselves to see themselves as imperial subjects, right? So they appeal to King Ludwig for help. It turns out that Ludwig comes from a good imperial family, But they're not territorially rich, nor are they financially rich. So he doesn't have a lot of resources. So he can't be a beggar and chooser about who he just who you know, if somebody wants to support him He kind of, he, he kind he's of like, needs all right, to like, we're like, yeah, guys, we're going to work this out together. So he intervenes on behalf of these Northern Italian lords who are resisting the Pope and the Pope decides to excommunicate Ludwig for this. As you do. And But essentially he uses a legal maneuver. He says, I didn't approve your election. So mm-hmm. you're not the king. So therefore all the things that you're doing when you say you're the king are, are not lawful. Mm-hmm. Right. And so the whole conflict actually ends up, at least in 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 the sense of what is the crux of the conflict, it's really about legal jurisdiction. Is right. the Pope's Roman canon law going to apply in Germany, or is the electoral tradition of the empire going to prevail? That is to say, that the elective princes mm-hmm. choose the king, and then the king right. is at that point, in fact, the king. And yeah. so there's a longer medieval history that goes back about, you know, back and forth about that claim between Pope and Emperor. Um, And a longer conflict, actually, about who's kind of in charge of the Holy Roman Empire. But the actual (laughs) proclamation that Ludwig makes is that papal law doesn't apply (laughs) to the royal election in Germany, which Mm -hmm. is a very far cry from saying that politics and religion are actually separate. What he's actually just saying is that the law of the church doesn't apply to the specific instance of the election by tradition. But it turns out that three of the electors are themselves archbishops, the archbishop of Trier, Mainz, and Cologne. I mean, these are all churchmen who are, Mm -hmm. you know, elected by the church, approved by the pope. They're, you know, they're three of the four electors. There's no question here that there's religion involved and nobody's trying to push religion out. At all. No. It's just it's more about how do we define and experience religion on a day to day basis? What power can the Pope have in the politics of the kingdom at its highest levels?
0: Right. That exactly how does the relationship, yeah, between yeah. the church and the kind of state, how or how the kingdom, how does that intersect?
1: Right, and this is actually this, uh, a manifestation of the same issue that, that Christendom has been facing writ large for the past, I, I suppose, like roughly 150 years, which is, what mm-hmm. is the role of the church in the individual Christian's life? And there's an right. in- increasing intervention of the church in the form of a requirement of confession, of the mendicant orders, like the Franciscans and Dominicans preaching yeah. and telling people what the Bible actually does say, you know, so that people <laughs> know what they're supposed to think, right? This idea about, you know, you should actually have certain rituals and rites that guide your life in a Christian way.
0: And coming in part as a kind of response to the kind of rise or perceived rise of heresy that that's the problem is that they don't know what they're supposed to believe and there's no meaningful oversight that the church has over the vast majority of the faithful.
1: Exactly. So it is so there's this tension between the church, which has this very rational, educational, lawyerly aspect to it, like, you know, with, with Roman with the like the apparatuses of Roman and canon law operating yeah. together into this like rational system through which they want, you know, essentially Christendom to operate. And in some sense, they're actually successful in disseminating the ideas of Roman canon law such that they underpin much of our modern legal system still today. But they aren't successful in preventing the idea that not every aspect of life should be governed by the Pope, right? right. Because there's, there's this sense that the imperial papacy, that the papacy has to guide every aspect of Christian life to, to lead to salvation, right? Yeah. It's kind of a monarchical model of rulership in a sense. Right. Nothing to do with separating politics and religion, and it's really about who gets to define what politics and what religion actually constitute.
0: Right, which is a much more interesting story than... <laughs> ah, he just separated politics and religion. We've got separation of church and state now. We're good.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I I find it very fascinating, and and a lot of this conflict from the imperial side actually is experienced as an affront to Ludwig's honor, as opposed to really mm-hmm. being strictly speaking a, just simply a legal matter, right? So reputation yeah. is is crucial in this time period. So a lot of how the imperial side tries to sell this. its own supporters is that you know the the, you know ludwig's honor has been affronted the honor of the empire is being affronted by its enemy and so there's the legal aspect but there's also just this aspect about kind of this machismo about you know are we going to let this guy just you know this french guy (laughs) do this to us
0: yeah thank you and everyone can uh, look out for the book eventually
1: yeah eventually there will be a book on this topic (laughs) (laughs) forthcoming 2020 something i hope
0: (laughs) (laughs) For our next section, Fabula Nostra, we talk about essentially alternative versions of this that we might want to come up with. Often we do casting. <laughs> I had a week and did not come up with casting, I'm going to be honest. Oh,
1: man. Casting. I don't know.
0: So I'm actually just going to be <laughs> very brief on my front and just say that we medievalists are like the like 12 people in the world who really want a series that actually is really, I think, delving into this conflict between the Franciscans and the church in this yes. period. Definitely. I would love to have a show that's actually centered on that. And I think that could be really fascinating to actually really kind of delve into the theological implications of this debate.
1: Yes, I I truly agree.
0: And because I do believe in how shows should have female characters who sort of matter, I think having people who are having kind of nuns who are of the poor clairs actually would be an interesting kind of tack in terms of how they are both kind of engaged in this debate, but also kind of sidelined from it. Yeah. I think could be an interesting element. And also, honestly, at this point, I just think it would be great to have some women that like aren't a love interest for anybody because like everybody's celibate and they can just stay that way
1: right (laughs) you mean all medieval women didn't live like or nuns didn't live like in the little hours
0: (laughs) i mean some did but that the clares, the clares are probably not the direction they would have taken if they were going to go that way if that's what they were looking for
1: i mean i guess my wish list is that the two the two stories could just be mashed together you know
0: right yeah
1: (laughs) it's like oh and these these nuns have shown up here and they're they're ready to participate in this in this debate as well
0: (laughs) right and i do actually think that Alison Bree, brie who's in the little hours i think actually i think she could be she could do a good job as a sincere nun too
1: yeah she was pretty good i think she was good in that yeah my wish list would be more female characters perhaps i mean yeah certainly less extraneous action and it would actually be interesting i wonder what an actual scholar of medieval warfare would would like what they would film a battle looking like i bet it would be a much more orderly affair (laughs) with far less death and more running away I'm just guessing, but
0: right, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I guess they like actually like when things do get into a pitch battle. I think they probably are somewhat chaotic yeah. ultimately.
1: Like crazy was probably pretty bad. Like crazy, right? Yeah.
0: Yeah, and I do actually kind of like the touch to some extent that he is trying to say the last rights over somebody, but it seems like then a weird touch. His father's like, "Come on, he's dead already. Leave him alone." Right. <laughs> Our final main section, enumeratio, is where we rate this on a scale of one to five based on essentially whatever criteria we decide. You decide that you'd like to base this on. Um, we can okay. each have our own ratings. What would you give this on a scale of one to five?
1: I have like a cheater scale because it's like okay. I want to. I want to like give it a five to start with because yeah. it tries so hard and it does so much well. And it's like uh-huh. John Turturro does a great job. But then I have to lower it a full like three notches immediately because basically... <laughs>
0: yeah.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. It's like, so you guys know that there are no women and that this is a problem. Like the one right. female character has no name. So you introduce a female character, but she's totally <sighs> gratuitous to the plot. And if you had not had her in there at all... Actually, nothing would have changed otherwise in the entire rest of the show, really. I mean, am I wrong? And so, to me, that lowers it a lot, you know. Just, it, it really does, because I feel like yeah. it's a distraction, and it's almost an insult to us as viewers is that we can't handle a more, like, I guess, sophisticated... You know, that we just need some swords and stuff.
0: <laughs> you know, and then in addition, it's like adding insult to injury that then they also have to kill her.
1: Yes, and, and then she died. Like, she literally... it's like she never existed
0: oh (laughs) exactly yeah like she could have least like helped nameless woman who they could have just given a name it's fine they could have helped her escape and gone off together and then at least she would have mattered for something like i I
1: thought they would. i thought they were gonna go off together you know and then when she died it was like oh
0: man come on yeah (laughs)
1: wow yeah i think my final rating though it goes back to a three just because for, for those critiques, I actually think that compared to the movie especially, the way that they actually did try to handle some of the issues from the book that were mm-hmm. tricky to handle, like the, the debate on poverty. Yeah. They did better than the movie in most of those respects. And mm-hmm. so I have to give a little respect to the team for at least trying.
0: <laughs> yeah. I think I'm going to knock it down to a two. I mean, in part because I would say like, I find it so frustrating that they had so much that was good to work with in the form of the book and so much space to really do that material justice. Oh, that's true. And there's areas in which they did well, but then there's so many areas in which instead their response was to introduce these plot lines that are emphasizing gratuitous violence and that are not adding anything to the plot. And there's the numerous issues with the female characters I really just cannot get over this like very gratuitous rape plot line and in particular how then this also kind of takes this like person with a disability and villainizes him in this very disturbing way I think I'm gonna go with a two, and I think to be honest it probably almost would have been a one except for how (laughs) much I enjoyed a couple of the kind of moments here and there when they're actually kind of giving space to things like you know that like Franciscan like that debate over poverty I think they're just like those are done so well and that John Terturo does a great job and actually I think James Cosmo as Jorge uh, I think that he kind of got sidelined a little bit more than he actually ideally would have been but I think he did a great job too so I yeah. as I said I I really almost would have given it a one for not doing a good enough job of adapting it's actually like fantastic source material right and that's I mean fair. basically like for having taken something that would have been a five and bringing the level down I think that like Yeah, because of that, I almost would have given it a one, but because of the few things that it does do so well, uh, the acting, I'll up it to a two. So are there places where people could find you or you would want them (laughs) to find you on the internet?
1: Well, I, I actually do need to create some sort of uh, internet presence. I don't really maintain one per se. I do have an Instagram page, Kevinismus seventy eight. Okay. Uh, if anyone wants to look at pictures of things like bread and skies.
0: You have some flowers.
1: And flowers, that's right. And yeah. mostly, it's just the way that I find helps me to focus on, you know, on beauty when I'm walking around.
0: And if you have enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe in your preferred podcatcher app. And please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. I will read five-star reviews in future episodes. So here is an example of a recent one from Emmy Can't Be Miko. So uh, the heading is, Two of my favorite things, history and mostly bad movies. Okay, not every movie covered here is a bad movie, and some of the bad ones are firmly in the good-bad camp, but enough are that this show really hits the spot if you enjoy bad movie discussion podcasts. Add an enthusiastic and authoritative discussion of real medieval history, and you have a podcast that is equal parts fun and informative. Highly recommended. Thank you for that kind review from Emmy Cantaby Miko. Please also follow the podcast on Twitter at Media Evil Pod and join our Facebook group and ask me any questions at media.evilpod at gmail.com. You can also find me on Twitter and Instagram at Sarah Ifdecker. Thank you, Kevin, for joining me today.
1: Thanks, Sarah. I really enjoyed it.
0: And thank you for listening to Media Evil. Bye. Bye. Bye.